Hey, this is Matt Markin, and you're listening to episode 48 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In today's episode, we have interviews with Winnie Tang from UC Santa Cruz, Ed Mendoza from Cal State San Bernardino, Beth Spencer from Georgia Tech, and Chris Kirchhoff from University of Pittsburgh. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Advising Podcast, and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Here's episode 48. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the podcast. Shout out time. Thanks to Isabel St. Joy, who wrote on Instagram, I cannot express how powerful Dr. Mercedes Butler's experience was for me. What an engaging podcast, and I plan on diving deeper into the other episodes. Aw, thanks. We have plenty to choose from, so enjoy. Also, shout out to Derek Furukawa, who had our podcast on his Spotify wrapped and said, yes, it's totally normal to consider your favorite podcast host a member of your family. Yes, indeed. This is Nakata family at its best. Thank you so much, Derek. And also thanks to Appreciative EDU for sharing Josh Linerode's interview. That was fun. And Josh just might be on again real soon. So it's December, and that means the Nakata Region Conferences are happening in early 2022. We have Chris Kirchhoff from University of Pittsburgh, who is also a Nakata Region rep, to chat about the conferences, registration, and proposal submissions. So here we go. All right, we welcome back to the podcast, Chris Kirchhoff, Director of the Undergraduate Recruitment and Transfer Student Success in the Swanson School of Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Chris is also a region rep within Nakata and is on the podcast today to chat about the upcoming region conferences. Chris, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me on. I we we were joking off air that uh, it's been a, it's been a little while, but um, hopefully we're um, bringing better news now with in person regional conferences and uh, getting back to what uh, people love about uh, all the different regional conferences. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, time flies. I mean, last time we had you on along with uh, Karen Lewis on our February fifteenth episode promoting the virtual region conferences. And we were grateful that I think that went fantastic with that conference, but it was nice in Cincinnati to actually be back in person uh, for the in-person component of that. But how have you been since uh, we last spoke in February? Oh, good. Work, work is work, but um, I'm working now with not only advising students, but also on the recruitment side of things. So it's uh, wearing a new hat and uh, exciting challenges. It's, re- it's really um, kind of an interesting um, role as we um, move into the next academic year and look at what, what higher ed is going to look like and what our student population is going to look like in the next year. Wearing more hats uh, always changes. So that's always the exciting part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so since uh, we're in December now, it's the last month of 2021. Uh, we're starting to look at opportunities in 2022. And one of those is the Nakata Region Conferences. So are we having region conferences like we used to? Is it virtual? Is it both? What can you tell us? So we are having region conferences. We are having in-person region conferences, but there's going to be a little bit of a twist. There's going to be um, hybrid models to each of them and virtual options to each of them. So for people who are looking to submit 
uh, presentations for them. Um, you're able to indicate whether you want to present only in person, only virtual, or if you're open to doing a hybrid, just because we want to make sure that that, that option is out there for people. Um, and there might be some people who are unable to travel, but still want the region conference experience. So there are going to be uh, a virtual hybrid options for them um, at, a, at a different cost, but making sure that um, everyone's able to to get involved just because I think there was a great success with the virtual regional conferences last year with the with the virtual components of annual conference and I think this is something moving forward that we just want to make sure that we're we're able to hit as many people as possible with uh, some of the good work that people are doing within the association yeah I think just generally speaking people are probably excited that we are still having region conferences but Probably a lot of them probably excited that, oh, it's going to be in person. Yeah. Uh, and then also have the virtual component so you can you can choose. Uh, but that, yeah, I mean, it's nice to have a wide variety of di- different ways. And, you know, you were talking about registration. Can you tell us more about registration, what that looks like price-wise it, with the difference between in-person versus uh, virtual? Um, the registrations on the Nakata website are only uh, for the in-person models because we're still working out all the kinks of how many different sessions and what times the sessions are going to be for the virtual um, simply because um, some of the some of the regional conferences may overlap a weekend so we're just working out those kinks but red early registration is open right now for some of the earlier regional conferences um, those early registration deadlines are going to come up at the end of january or beginning of february and it the early registration is 155 dollars of 100 dollars if you are a student or retiree and if you're a non-member it's uh 255 but why not become a member? Because you're going to get that that nice little discount, but uh, all the different perks that go along with the, the association as well. Great point. With why as well join the membership? You know, pay Absolutely. that. Yeah, pay that. Pay that membership fee because you do get that huge discount with registration for the conference. Yep. Yeah, and not just for region conferences, for any of the conferences, there's there's that membership. For the institutes, for the yeah. webinars, yeah, absolutely. And you know, for those that are interested in going in person, we can't really say we're we're post pandemic, or I guess we're kind of still in it. So, what is Nakata doing to ensure that attendees can feel safe and be safe at an in person conference? Well, obviously, we're going to be following all of the different state and local guidelines independent to each of the 10 locations. But also, given um, the success of the annual conference, we're going to be using the same service, the VOW, um, to have uh, have people make sure that they uh, submit their uh, vaccination record prior to just to make sure to be on the safe side and make sure that everyone's going to feel safe. And um, each individual region um, is going to have their own uh, flair. I know there were wristbands and some other uh, things at the, the annual conference. Um, and we're le- leaving it up to the different individual regions just to, um, to put things in place to put people at ease. Because I know it's um, it, it, can, it can be a little jarring for some people, you know, walking into a gigantic uh, you know, room post pandemic. And um, we just want to make sure everyone feels safe. So um, those safeguards will be in place. So for reg- people who do register, just make sure you're checking your email and um, check that pre, uh, pre-conference just to make sure that uh, you're following all, all everything that uh, the association is asking. Yeah. And for those that may not have attended the Cincinnati conference, you were talking about the wristband. So um, I know there was like the three different color wristbands and they all represented something different. Um, yep. So if that happens to be at the region conference, can you just talk about what what that might look like if, oh. if it is a region wristbands? 
Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, in Cincinnati, it was you had your choice of like three different rubberized wristbands. Uh, green meant that you felt uh, very comfortable in social situations, hugs, high fives, all that stuff. Yellow is a little bit cautious. And then um, red is you know, more of a, you know, I want to keep my distance. I want to be socially safe, which is perfectly OK, um, because, you know, we're all um, going to be in different comfort levels and just making sure that each individual person feels like they're supported and they feel safe at the conference is important. Yeah. And so maybe that is at your region conference or maybe not, but there will be something in place yeah. uh, to just make sure everyone uh, feels as safe as possible and feels comfortable being at the conference in person. Now, of course, I guess the next question, logical question might be when and where will be these region conferences in 2022? So the the when and where um, I give um, a lot of credit to uh, Ben Hopper um, and Stephanie Schrader in the executive office for putting together all of the contracts, um, because as you might know, the hotel industry has been you know hit hard in the pandemic. And so they're just coming out of it. So a lot of these were um, thrown together quicker than what we will typically do with a conference. Sometimes, you know, there's two years worth of planning, but now there's been a uh, um, th- that timetable has been accelerated. So the first conference is going to actually be in February, um, region three in on February 21st and 23rd um, down in Knoxville, Tennessee are going to have their first. And then you have them all throughout March, um, some in April and then in May. Um, so there is a quite of a difference for um, for each of the regions. They're not going to overlap this year um, just because um, each individual region has their own uh, times that might be better. But at the same time, if your region conference do- doesn't match up with maybe your spring break or graduation time, you can always attend a different region and you can attend one if it's geographically closer for you. Um, you're not locked in because you're a region one member to go to the region one conference. You have that flexibility um, to travel um, to the to whichever location or dates are going to work for you. And we've got some really great locations out there. Um you know, I'm, I'm from Region 2. We're going back to Norfolk, Virginia, which is a really nice uh, hotel at the Waterside Marriott. Um, but I'm also, I grew up in New England, so I look at, like, Mystic, Connecticut. That's a great site. Um, but then I'm also extremely jealous of looking at, like, Region 9 in Orange, California. Um, Matt, I know you were uh, instrumental in locking up that location. And also for our Canadian uh, friends out there, Region 8 is going to be in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, at the end of May. And that is one that um, from talking with the executive office, it's going to be happening over Victoria Day or around that time. And so the hotel was able to honor the prices pre-pandemic for the hotel room. So you can probably get a really good deal um, if you are uh, north of the border. That's really awesome. And we'll add the link to the region website uh, in the show notes so you can kind of check out the dates and locations. But you mentioned Region 9, so I will plug it. Uh, Region 9, March 16th through the 18th, 2022. We will be in Orange, California, like Chris said, four miles from Disneyland. So Very jealous, very jealous. So not that you want to go to the conference to go to Disneyland. You can go before or after, but still go to the conference to learn. But stick around for a little bit and head over to the happiest place on Earth. Which I would say is the region conference, but if Disneyland also wants to have that, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, I think they might have a trademark. I'm not sure. They might. They might. <laughs> yes. All all trademarks to Disneyland on that. Thanks. And 
I need to go back to just mention when I was talking about the Region mm-hmm. 9 conference, just to throw it out there is it's a joint conference. So I can't forget our friends in CalCAN and our California um, Academic Advising Network that we are joining forces with them for our, our conference. So it is not just Region 9, but Region 9 and CalCAN. We were mentioning conferences, you know, attending the conference, but also what about submitting proposals? So I know there's been a couple deadlines. Has that deadline been extended? Can someone still submit a proposal? Absolutely, yes. If you're listening to this on uh, the drop day, which is, I think, Monday the, the 6th, mm-hmm. um, yep. the the conference proposals for all 10 conferences are have been extended out to Monday, December 20th. And that's in part because we want to make sure we get as many quality proposals as possible. So there is still plenty of time um, and to submit a proposal. There's plenty of time if you want to take a look at some of the different um, locations and times and what's going to work for you to submit a proposal. And um, we, we're we really excited about having these conferences back in person, but we need help. We need the help from the membership to um, put forth a proposal, a group proposal, a panel, um, anything that's going to um, help to you know spread the word of advising and make sure that um, we, we have a really good conference to pull off. So if you haven't already submitted it, you, there's still time, um, but you want to make sure you get it in before um, 2 p.m. Central Time on Monday the 20th. Yeah, and I think that's very important is that everything that's posted time-wise regarding deadlines is central time, yep. not the time of where you're at or you're located. And, you know, you were referencing that you can attend a conference, uh, whether it's your region or not. I know for me, when I, my first few years in, in Nakata as a member, I assumed that I could only go to Region 9 as my conference or the annual conference, that I couldn't actually go to a different one. But it makes sense that you could go because you can actually network with other folks and see what they're doing at their in their region and maybe take it back to your region. Absolutely. I think the, the more contacts you're able to make, um, especially um, depending on the different institutions, uh, you know, if it's a small liberal arts or a large public, um, being able to make all those different connections beyond your region is important. And, um, you know, f- from where I am in Pennsylvania, um, it is going to be about the same to drive to Cincinnati for annual conference as it will for Norfolk for the regional conference. So, um, you know, based on the travel, uh, you, you're going to go to the one that's going to work uh, work best for you and work best for your schedule. Um, and that same goes with submitting a proposal. You're allowed to present if you're not um, part of that region. Um, you just got to make sure that you, you go to the conference and you um, are accepted. But that's all, always an option, too. And it's kind of fun sometimes to um, go somewhere and listen to a lot of different viewpoints, because as you can, as you know, the educational system state to state or region to region is going to vary. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it helps us become better advisors once we kind of learn what's going out, what's going on across the country and the world. Yeah. And, you know, with proposals, there's different types of proposals that that can get submitted. You know, you were referencing like, you know, whether you do it as a group, a panel, but, you know, you have what poster session, concurrent session, a pre-conference workshop. What is the difference between all of those? So that's actually a really good question. So when you when you submit a proposal, you're indicating how you want to present it. And for someone, a, a poster, that's going to be um, like what you would see at annual regional where you're stationary, you have, you know, your set, you know, manipulatives or handouts, um, but people are um, coming to you and you're giving the five minute elevator pitch of what you do as um uh, as an advising service or as a uh, as a good practice, 
Um, for panels, that might be three, four, or five different individuals, probably from different institutions, giving their take on a um, on an advising topic. Um, and then the pre-conferences, those are going to be longer. Those are two to three hour sessions that occur prior to the conference, where when people register, they're paying an extra fee to attend a, a pre-conference. But those are uh, really good workshops where you're able to take away something. So if you are uh, looking is so if you have a set um, uh, topic that you are an expert on, or you have a couple people on your campus who are experts on, and you can share that knowledge, and people are able to walk away with a um, uh, with a solid program. That's um, that's a really good way to um, to to get across your message. Um, typically, there aren't as many you know, pre-cons as there are regular concurrent sessions during conference, but um, we do need those, those as well. So if you're interested in uh, submitting for any of those, uh, please feel free to do so through the, through the Nakata portal. And, and the pre-cons, I mean, even though there might be like an extra fee to that, they're usually longer, like two to three hours. And I appreciated learning a lot in those because they're more hands-on. Uh, you kind of get to really kind of get to know the uh, presenter, know what they've done, but they also kind of help you work at the same time on some type of maybe project or homework assignment. Yeah, it's it definitely not like a, a lecture style where you're going to sit there for two hours. It's very interactive. You're going to you're going to have some homework. You might have homework coming into the session, um, but you're really going to kind of workshop something and you're going to work with the presenters on that. And they're, they really take a vested interest in what you're doing. And you've got a really good takeaway of something that you can go right back to your campus and say, this is this is what I've learned at this conference and this is what I'm going to do. Now, people listening probably are agreeing with this and they're like, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to attend. Maybe I want to submit a proposal. And I will say that a lot of the different regions, including Region 9, have done some sort of um, uh, panel or talk story that uh, about how to write a proposal. I know Sarah Howard has done a presentation yeah. on it. Uh, Mercedes Butler from Region 9 did two of them on the same day for members. <laughs> and so please check your emails uh, if you're a Nakata member because links to those have been sent out um, or go on some of the region pages and you might find the links to the videos there as well. And a lot of them go step by step of, you know, the, from idea to actually submitting the proposal and it makes everything very clear, structured, and doesn't make it as scary as some might think it is. Yeah, it's, it should not be an intimidating process, but I can understand the first time that you do it, it's a little, it can be a little awkward. But um, yeah, I know Region 2 did a talk and you, the 9 talk that um, you referenced, there's a lot of good information out there to help support what makes a really good proposal. But then after you get to have that proposal and you have it accepted, okay, well, how do I turn that proposal now into a presentation? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of different resources on the Nakata website to do that as well. I, cause I was, I'm always one that like, I don't necessarily want to present by myself. And so having colleagues that you could do it with, it makes it easier. Cause if you think about it, you have, let's say you have an hour presentation. If you have two other people with you, you're not talking the whole hour. You can split yep. that time and make it easy on yourself as well. And it gives you um, some different perspectives during that. Um, and I know that one of the things that was um, something as I first started presenting in Nakata, I'm thinking like, oh, hey, we're going to have like five minutes where you turn and talk to your neighbor. Well, um, you know, that that time is better spent with an, a different expert on there to giving their perspective, which is going to be different than my perspective. And that, and that's a good thing because we're going to have um, some different approaches to all the different advising practices we use. Yeah, yeah definitely. And 
again, people are probably listening going, that all sounds great, Chris. Yep, mm-hmm. I, I agree. But budget. Yeah. Budget at my institution, budget within the department I work in is not what it used to be, not pre-pandemic wise. So yeah. what advice do you have for individuals that they want to attend? They want to gain that knowledge. They know that attending the conference can make a difference. They want to be able to network, whether it's in person or virtual. What do you say to that? Um, I would say one of the good ways to get your boss or whoever controls the purse strings at your campus, um, getting them to allow you to go to a regional conference is saying, hey, not only only am I attending, but I'm presenting. So um, I know at some campuses, they won't provide professional development unless you are presenting. So um, submitting a proposal, showing your involvement from the get-go is a really good way. Um, But also making sure to uh, show, showing them the value of Nakata. The uh, schedules are going to be out um, prior to the conference, so you're able to te- see the sessions. So you can go back and show them the two or three sessions that you know you're going to go to because you're going to come back with this. Um, but also offer on your campus um, about, uh, hey, if, if you let me go to this regional conference, I can come back and I can do a workshop on some of the things that we learned or some of the things that we talked about. So that way there's a direct um, intangible like thing that you're bringing back to your advising group. Um, that might be something that um, is going to help to uh, convince the people who are um, who are managing your budgets to say, okay, yep, yeah, I, I do see the value in this. And when you look at the prices of an Akata regional conference versus other higher ed associations, the regional conferences, if you're a member, $155 for two and a half days is a lot of uh, a lot of bang for your buck. This is just to show how you can go full circle with this. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, I did attend co- region conference. I've attended annual conferences, but attending a conference, you get so much. So I did attend a session um, fr- from one of the institution that talked about uh, advising students on probation within uh, their healthcare major. And I work with students on academic probation within our office. And I emailed this person, hey, can I get your PowerPoint? Can I get uh, some of the worksheets that you've used? She sent it over and I said, am I able to use this? And she said, absolutely. Um, And then I worked with my boss on revamping an independent study that we had, utilizing pretty much a lot of the suggestions that this person had within their presentation after a year, we saw some results with it, and then we've gone to present on it um, at uh, region and annual conferences. So this all can go full circle, and yep. it's very beneficial. Um, and just that's just one little way of of why you should should attend a conference. Yeah, uh, the the regional conference presentations when you attend them, they um, they will be uh, smaller in attendance than a gigantic ballroom at annual. And so you really have that opportunity to reach out and talk with the people after the session, get their contact information um, and really kind of build up a personal connection with those presenters. Absolutely. I support I I absolutely agree with that because um, some of the regional conferences are where I've gotten some of my best ideas in my own practice, but also um, giving me the skills to kind of take a look at my, you know, my profession as a whole and where I want to go and looking at what other people are doing at, you know, local schools that, you know, I can pick up the phone and talk with them on. Well, Chris, I appreciate you being on the podcast, getting to talk about region conferences. And you said December 20th deadline for the proposal. So get a proposal submitted. 
But Chris, appreciate you being on. Absolutely. Thanks for um, thanks for giving me the opportunity uh, for your listeners. Uh, check out the website. Look at the the deadlines to submit a proposal um, because we need um, as many uh, as many proposals as possible to make sure that we have the highest quality conferences as possible. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for answering those questions about the region conferences. And we'll add those links to the show notes. Up next is Winnie Tang from UC Santa Cruz. On this episode is Winnie Tang. Winnie was born and raised in New York City and attended college and graduate school in Philadelphia. She is a proud alumna of Bryn Mawr College. While completing her master's in education at Penn, she worked full-time in what was then college houses and academic services, and that is how she found the wonderful world of higher education as a career path. She is maybe your classic story of a higher ed professional who started in residence life and transitioned to academic advising. Some other fun factoids, Winnie has lived and worked in higher education institutions in Hong Kong, Canada, Oregon, and Hawaii. Currently, she is a lead academic preceptor, just another way of saying a supervising college advisor for two residential colleges at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Winnie, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thank you, Matt. Or should I say, Mark? That's uh, inside yeah. joke for us. <laughs> inside joke. And yeah, so if anyone, listen, why did Winnie say that? A lot of people will just call me Mark. And it's gotten to a point where I've gotten so used to it that if people call me Mark, I just acknowledge that <laughs> and don't correct them. So <laughs> now you know our, our inside joke. So Winnie, you know, we've known each other for a few years now. And I knew that you had worked in Oregon, Hawaii at a time, but I didn't know about Hong Kong and Canada. So I think this is going to be fascinating. I'm going to learn a lot as well as the, the listeners uh, for this podcast. So tell us about your exciting journey in higher education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. And yeah, I can definitely start with um, how I ended up in Hong Kong and Canada. Um, when I was in college, I uh, thought I wanted to pursue a minor in education, but I ended up um, dropping my minor in my senior year of college. And then I decided to uh, pursue a master's degree in uh, teaching English to speakers of other languages, a TESOL master's, um, which upon graduation, I ended up teaching English um, at local community colleges and what was then the uh, Hong Kong Institute of Education. I was an English teacher there for a number of years. Um, and uh, I realized uh, maybe this was not my pathway, uh, teaching in front of the classroom. And so um, somewhere along the timeline, I decided that I was going to uh, uh, start on a journey um, in, uh, in, in a doctoral program. And so while I was in Hong Kong, um, I started applying for different uh, higher education institutions in the U.S. and also in Canada. And then I was very fortunate to be admitted to a doctoral program um, at UBC, Univers University of British Columbia um, in Vancouver. And it was a really cool experience. And while I was um, in my doctoral program, um, I lasted one year in my doctoral program, but while there, I was also working in residence life um, at UBC. And I think it was at that point where I realized that my calling wasn't necessarily to be a professor or to be a teacher in the classroom, but that I really loved working with students. And it was um, really at that point where I decided to like really commit my career to um, helping students in 
higher education, but in a, in a different kind of capacity. Um, and I eventually found my way back to the U.S. Uh, and uh, I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's wild, kind of how things happen. And then it's like a trial and error kind of thing where it's like, let me test things out, see how it goes. I want to do this, maybe not. But yeah, just kind of where life takes us. I always find that to be really amazing. And then, yeah, then let's talk about um, Oregon and Hawaii and then to, to UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. That journey. Yeah. So um, uh, let's see. So one of the reasons why I lasted one year in my doctoral program and a big lesson that I learned during that time is um, what my priorities are, what's important to me, what I'm good at. Um, and one of my big priorities was I, I was uh, at that point, I was in a long distance relationship. Um, and uh, at, at a certain point, we were trying to maintain a relationship between Hong Kong and Philly and Hong Kong and Davis, California, and between Davis, California and Vancouver, Canada. So different countries, different coasts, um, all these different things. And um, long story short is we decided that um, our relationship was really important. And um, and uh, Canada just wasn't going to work out for us as a couple. And so um, at that time, after doing my one year in the doctoral program, um, I was looking at different options of uh, basically how, how to be together in the United States. <laughs> because a really shocking thing to my system was as a, um, as a student at UBC, uh, I was considered an international student. So that was just like a really interesting experience for me. Anyway, so um, at the end of my first year of my doctoral program, I was looking at um, different jobs um on the west coast and specifically in the pacific northwest because i knew that um, even though vancouver canada wasn't going to work out for me long term i knew that i love the pnw um and so and my partner now husband now also really likes the pnw like like the pnw and that's how basically i ended up in portland oregon um and my role um i i i uh I got my job or got hired into my position in August just before um, move-in an RA training was happening. So everything was definitely in a blur. It happened super duper fast. But I'm forever grateful for my supervisor who hired me into the uh, residence director position. Um, but I have to clarify about this because um, at Portland State University, they had um, at that time, they had different types of residence directors. Some residence directors are your traditional RDs who work in housing and they oversee um, buildings or spaces or um, living spaces. But then uh, PSU at that time also, I think still does, also had, had a different type of residence director that oversaw a residential learning center. So there was a learning center that was housed within quote unquote, the dorms, the residence halls. And so that was actually the, uh, I was an RD for, for the learning center. Uh, it was called University Success. Um, and that actually was a pretty amazing as an opportunity because it was a blend of, um, it wasn't academic advising formally. There was, it was um, primarily it was academic coaching um, and it was a blend of academics and student uh, student life in, in one position. So on the one hand, I had, we, of course, did um, some residence life programming, like throwing, um, you know, after hours events, um, craft nights, uh, study skills workshops, things like that. But I also got to supervise um, the uh, learning community 
assistants, LCA, learning community assistants, who were kind of like the RAs in the dorms, but they were actually um, more focused on the academic side of things. Um, and so that was my first exposure to academic coaching, working students on their academics, helping students figure out their degree requirements, how to um, get into majors and things like that. And so that was, um, this was a really eye-opening experience. I had never, I had not known about this type of blended role prior to doing, prior to working at PSU, but I found a lot of joy in it. Um, so that's Oregon. Um, should I continue with like Hawaii? Yeah, let, let's go. Okay. So Hawaii cool. and then to yeah. California. Yeah. Okay, sure, sure. Okay. So um, yeah, so then I was there for about a year and a half. And then um, also, so the theme is my relationship really matters to me. And at that point, my partner had um, uh, got a job. He applied and got a job at, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And um, it was both uh happy and sad right because we love the pnw but also hawaii like you know we think oh my gosh it's great so we it was an opportunity that we could not pass up um and it was a really good move for both of our careers uh, my partner also works in higher education but more with um, international students and international programs anyway so we both work in higher education and this is a really great opportunity for my partner and so um he moved to Hawaii, to Honolulu. And the lesson learned from our previous long distance attempts is it is important to have a plan to get together <laughs> at some point. Um, and so we, um, I, I uh, my boss at PSU, so super great. I let her know about what was happening in my own personal life and my plans, like basically the long departure. So I, um, I, I uh, started looking for jobs um, at or in Hawaii. Um, my graduate degree is in uh, teaching English. So um, trying to leverage that master's degree, um, but also kind of trying to exit the field as well. So when I first ended up in Hawaii, I was teaching English because there were lots of English teaching opportunities um, in, in Honolulu. There's lots of international students, particularly from Asia that end up in Honolulu. Um, and UH Manoa is, an excellent school for um, you know international students. So I did that for a few months, um, then trying to get my get, get away from English teaching because I felt like that was, still wasn't my calling. Ended up uh, getting a, a, a position at the uh, John A. Burns School of Medicine with the University of Hawaii, but short short for Jabsum. Um, and I was there uh, very happily, um, except for um, the, the the position was a contract position, or sorry, it was a grant funded position. And I came in at year five of a five-year grant. So <laughs> I was a learning specialist and it was an amazing position. And I felt like it was really important to my experience in Hawaii because it really introduced me to the history and the culture of um, the Hawaiian Islands, which is very unique and different um, from the continental United States. Um, I learned I learned a little bit of Hawaiian language. I learned a lot about history. Um, it was very culturally immersive. So yeah, if if that grant 
so for me personally, I, I like stability. And if I had known that the grant would, would be would have been renewed, which it was actually, but if I had known it would have been renewed, I would have stayed longer, but I didn't know at that time. So anyway, so I was working at the Native Hawaiian Center of Excellence, which is a pipeline program to get Native Hawaiian students into hopefully medical school, hopefully within the um, within the University of Hawaii system, because then, you know, uh, training medical uh, providers to serve to serve um, the native population and things like that. Anyway, so I really believe in the mission, um, but that lasted just a short time because after that, I uh, finally ended up um, getting an interview for an academic advising job um, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, it took a long time. I applied and then many, many, many months later, I heard back for a round one interview and then a few months after that, I got around two interviews. So um, I'm grateful that I uh, was able to be patient and wait for, I would call it my dream job. Um, yeah, and I guess I could talk a little bit about who I was advising at the University of Hawaii. Yeah, what was yeah, what was the center, like the student populations and yeah, and your role there, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so um, it was with the Manoa Advising Center, MAC. Um, and it was a center that uh, Megumi Kanehiro, Megumi, Makino Kanehiro, uh, MMK, um, had, 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 had worked so hard for for so many years. Mm -hmm. And it was an advising center um, created for um, exploratory students. Um, Megumi had, um, I, I, to my understanding, had fought really hard for resources to hire enough advisors to um, to support um, students in the exploratory phase of their career, and it, it's a it's a very um, it's there's like a high touch necessity with exploratory students, right? Like it's not just like a here sign this form, okay, great, like you're on your way. Um, it's it's the kind of you, you basically are forming relationships with with first year students and guiding them towards a really big decision in their college career. And it was just an amazing time starting my advising career at the Manoa Advising Center. Um, I had to learn, I, I did not attend UH Manoa as an undergrad, so I had to like learn about the hundred-ish majors that UH Manoa had to offer, all the different requirements, all the prereqs, um, all those different kinds of things. So it was, um, it was, it was excellent. It was a wonderful challenge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's kind of like what, what I was doing in Hawaii. And did you work with, uh, was Matt Ng part of that? Uh, yeah. Yes. So I would say Megumi and Matt, and I mean, the whole crew is basically how I got started in Nakata. Mm. Um, from the moment I got there, um, I was just seeing all the cool things that um, Matt was doing, that Eve was doing, um, that Megumi was doing. Um, and Nakata and the community that they had, which I thought was really important because being in Hawaii, you're kind of far away from all the things. Um, but they had so much community um, in the in a professional sense, and it was it was through Nakata. And from there, I was just learning about like all the different ways of getting involved. Um, I think Region Nine is kind of cool because Region Nine has Hawaii, yeah. um, and so it was it was nice to it was just. Uh, it, it was just a really good community mm -hmm. that I found in my office specifically, and then being exposed to advisors from like California and Nevada. Um, so that was like a really good start. So my 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 uh, my gateway into Nakata was definitely through the region uh, at the regional level. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so Megumi has been a, a past guest on the podcast and actually Matt is going to be a future guest on the podcast. So yeah, it's going to be nice to, to have like, you know, a couple of those team members that, that you, that you had worked with. And when you were um, at uh, UH Manoa, like you've done various conference presentations. Now, one of them was a co-presentation on supervising peer advisors, peer coaches, and student workers, how to nurture growth and effective leadership. Uh, so I guess uh, for you, like, you know, in your experience and, and opinion, like what are ways that you nurture growth and effective leadership within like peer advisors, peer coaches and student workers? Yeah. Um, and I would say my experience with supervising student student leaders and um, started in my days in Portland State. And uh, one of the big things I learned was um, that this is a professional development opportunity for the student. Right. Like they're not. Yes, they're they're helpful. Yes, they cover the front desk or they fill in some gaps here and there, but this is also a professional development opportunity for them. So it's really important to spend time growing them, developing them, mentoring them. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the big things is uh, having, I would say having one-on-ones mm -hmm. with, your, with your, your coach, with your RA, with front desk employee. Um, it's uh, ha having one-on-ones with them, not only to check in on how is work going, but also to see um, if the work that they're doing with you if it aligns with what they're wanting to do in the future, has it opened their eyes to new things they want to do, or is this, or has it shown them that this is not what they want to do, which is also fine. Um, and just to check in with them to see, you know, because they're always it's their students first, right? Mm -hmm. Just to check in to see how they're doing, because you know, if if things in their personal life are challenge are challenging, then it will it will show up in their in their in their work as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, being a caring, nurturing um, supervisor uh, is one of the, the big takeaways that I, I think, yeah, I think it was one of the big takeaways from my experience. Um, the the Manoa Advising Center in particular was really interesting. And that was like a presentation that we, we had to, it was a co-presentation because we actually had different kinds of student workers. Mm -hmm in our offices. And so that was like one of the reasons why we decided to do a, a co-presentation because each of us worked with our student workers in slightly different ways, but the expectations were a little bit different. So like when, um, for a while I was supervising our front desk um, student workers and their job responsibilities are more like triaging questions, customer service. So that's like a particular skill set. versus um, I also at one point transitioned to supervising the uh, Manoa sophomore experience program assistant. So mm -hmm. a, a student worker who helped you run a program. And that particular skill set was not necessarily customer service, but more event planning, um, being organized, like program management. So that was like a different way of supervising um, a student worker. Uh, I, I was never a peer advisor supervisor. So that's where in that presentation, we brought in a peer advisor supervisor, because of course, when you train peer advisors, you also are trying to train them with some advising knowledge, mm -hmm. um, which is also important for when they interact with their peers. So yeah, that was kind of the gist of our our presentation. Did I answer the question, Matt? Yeah, you did. No, fully. Yeah, you definitely answered it. And I do have a follow-up in a way. And mm -hmm. maybe there's answers, maybe not. But like at many institutions, like you have, you know, there might be peer advisors, peer mentors, peer coaches, mm -hmm. student workers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like for us as like staff or faculty, yeah. in a way, we, like we know what the differences are. But like mm -hmm. from a student perspective, sometimes maybe they mix them all together and assume they're all like peer advisors or they, they all do the yeah. same thing. 
Yeah. Do you have thoughts on like how to help students know the differences between between all of them? Because you know, you might meet with a student and let's say they're like, "Oh yeah, um, my peer advisor told me this," and then it turns out mm. it was it wasn't a peer advisor; it was it was someone else. And then yeah. you know, is you know, with all because even there's some overlap w- with all of it too. There is a lot of overlap. And do you mean like to help like the non-student worker know the difference between a, the, the student workers? Yeah. Well, I guess that. Yeah. Um, st- students knowing the difference but yeah. also like you know even anyone that works on campus to know the difference because yeah. even i think some of them might just assume they just put them all in yeah. one group <laughs> so this is like something really silly but a little bit basic but uh, name tags really help mm. so we um we this is just a very like practical thing um just even having a name tag that's like hi my name is winnie peer advisor then, then when you when you're interacting with the public they know at least what your job title is um, versus like if you just um, you run across a student you don't know like what their actual role is so na- I mean name tags for one thing I find them to be very effective um, at every place that I've worked I've pushed for tiny bits of finding to get name tags for people um, and then I would say as far as knowing the differences mm, let's see not to get too controversial I, I would say yeah even like staff members they're like oh this is a student worker can they help me make photocopies um so uh what i will say is i think it's um i think it's just important to like say out loud what they're doing um uh on a regular basis um and also i do find that um especially if it's about communicating what peer advisors do or what a certain student group does is communicating maybe at at the end of the year their accomplishments so that it really because those are the highlights right like in the day-to-day they answer 10 questions might not sound very astounding but if at the end of the uh, quarter or end of the year they responded to you know 200 emails and 400 chats and you know interacted with you know 10 students like so i think having end of the year summaries um end of the year highlights is actually a really good way to let um especially outsiders or um, staff members or faculty members know about the accomplishment of the peer or of that particular student group. So if we're highlighting, um, if we're talking about peer advisors, I would say highlighting and assessing the accomplishments of the peer advisors and then like sharing out that information. Yeah. And in the day to day, it's kind of like, I don't want to say being protective, but like if someone's like, hey, can you get me coffee? It's like, oh, actually, um, we're not going to get you coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And before we get to talk about UC Santa Cruz, um, I do mm-hmm. want to talk about um, going back to Hong Kong because you had wrote an article titled "Reimaginings of Hong Kong," and mm-hmm. um, and I know you had alluded to the, starting the like a PhD program, and this yeah. kind of happened around that time, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I had a I, there was a kind of BC in it. AD, but there was like a before Winnie and an after Winnie. <laughs> um, so uh, in my in my doctoral days, and because this is um, coming out of my um, my master's degree in teaching English, um, I was I am I was I am really interested in language and literacy education, um, particularly as it ties into identity. So um, uh, this is a double-edged sword, but. Uh, Basically, for one of my, my one of my identities is uh, Hong Kong American. So my parents um, were uh, from Hong Kong, um, and then they immigrated to U.S. Um, so I have uh, I have uh, I have strong feelings 
um, about, about Hong Kong, which is also how I ended up teaching in Hong Kong for a number of years after I finished graduate school. Um, and I'm also really interested in language, um, specifically the language of Hong Kong, which is Cantonese. Um, Many Asian Americans may, might have maybe similar experiences of being bicultural, but having varying levels, um, varying levels of um, proficiency at their um, quote unquote mother tongue. Um, and so <clears throat> my proficiency in Cantonese has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, it's pretty not great right now. It was pretty great when I was living in Hong Kong and I was pushed to use it. Anyway, so I had a, I have a strong I have a strong interest in um, Cantonese heritage language education, which was what I had started my doctoral program in, um, in researching. Uh, uh, so, so many of you, maybe audience members might know Chinese school, like if we went to language school on the weekends. So that was like my primary research topic was on Cantonese heritage language education um, in diaspora communities. Uh, the topic was probably too personal for me, I will be honest, um, because it was really hard to find to find continuous funding um, on um, a language that's not particularly powerful. So like languages of power have a lot of um, research funding uh, backing it up because there's lots of vested interests uh, versus languages that are less commonly taught, less popular. Um, it's harder to find funding. And so that's a really practical situation. So like I basically ran out of money in my second year of my doctoral program um, as an international student in Canada. So then that was a very practical concern. I was like, well, I'm going to also focus on my own career as well. Um, but yeah, but during my PhD days, I did write an article about reimagining Hong Kong. Um, the gist of that article is basically even to this day, I will say, Let's go. Like, I went back to Hong Kong, I, um, which is interesting because the word back connotes that that's where I came from. But that's not true because I was born and raised in the U.S. But yeah, I have this imaginary homeland. Um, and that was my article. My research was interviewing other Chinese, all the Hong Kong Americans who have this imaginary homeland of Hong Kong. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the that's the gist of it, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, it's like, we all have seem to have like these connections, uh, you know, based off our backgrounds, our culture and everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I find that very fascinating. And so now, you know, we've talked about Hong Kong, we've talked about being in uh, British Columbia, Oregon, uh, you know, going Portland State, um, Hawaii, University of uh, Manoa. Now, how do we get to, to Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz? Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, I'm glad I have a scene here. It's like, it's almost like I planned it. So, um, <laughs> relationships. So my relationship matters a lot to me and my partner now husband, uh, was looking for other, other ways to grow his career. And, um, <clears throat> he ended up, um, uh, with the division of global engagement at UC Santa Cruz. And so he, we visited, um, together to see if this was a place that we could uh, move to together. Um, clearly it was because um, he changed jobs. And then I started my um, job application, job search process. Um, and this is one of my big takeaways was, and was his encouragement too, is to challenge myself in my career to grow and develop my skill set. Um, I have been uh, in higher education for 
like 10 years at that point. And so I uh, applied for my first uh, super supervision supervisory position um, in academic advising. And uh, this hiring process actually moved rather quickly. <laughs> Which is surprising. So, <laughs> I know a lot of people are yeah. like, HR process usually takes forever. Yeah, it was surprisingly fast. Um, uh, yeah, so then it, I, I blinked and it happened. And I uh, suddenly found myself um, at the uh, starting a new position at the very tail end of winter quarter at a new institution. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> I I am a uh, well yeah so um, it was when I look back on it now I'm like well, how did I do that um, It was really hard at the beginning uh, starting a new position at a new place in the middle of the school year. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that I challenged myself uh, and pushed myself because uh, it's it's helped me grow so much in the, in the work that I do in academic advising. And I feel like I am definitely in a position to help make positive changes. You know, because when you're an entry level person, you're like, oh, grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, I wish this and that. But then it's it's um it's nice now to to sometimes have a seat at the table, not all the time, right? Because it's like middle management. It's like, sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not invited. Anyway, so yeah, my, my job title right now is lead academic preceptor, which is a really unique way of expressing um, someone who works in colleges advising, who supervises college advisors. Um, so uh, yeah, that's what I do right now. Um, and um, in my time here, my role has also changed a little bit. Um, UC Santa Cruz has 10 residential colleges, mm -hmm. which is uh, on, on top of their majors. Students have a call, quote unquote, college affiliation. Um, and each college has um, college advisors. Um, so when I first started my role, I was um, a supervisor for one college. Um, and then there were a bunch of things that happened. And then now I am a, I supervise uh, two college advising teams. Um, uh, we call them like sister colleges. So yeah, right now that's what I do. I supervise a team of four college advisors. Um, yeah, at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. And so one of the, the I guess, cool things too is mm -hmm. for most of it, you actually work remote, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking about that, Matt. So <clears throat> this, I guess, brings us to the present moment, or at least the year ah. 2020. Um, I uh, I go back for periodic visits, and I, I, I found on my one of my recent visits a, uh, a flyer that we made in March of 2020 that says, advisors are virtual for two weeks. See you in April. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and then we never came back. No, no, no. Um, so, <laughs> uh, what do I do with this flyer? I'm just kidding. I'll recycle it. Right. Um, so yeah, so uh, when when COVID happened mm -hmm. um, in March of 2020, um, all of us, uh, you know, because of safety, we all started working from home. Mm -hmm. um, and that went for, you know, quite some time. And then uh, this summer, so summer 21, so about a year and a half into it, um, uh, we started having very serious discussions about, okay, well, um, we're go you know, students are going to come back, you know, students are going to come back, COVID-19 
knock on wood, cannot last forever. Um, so we started having discussions about what does it look like? What will it mean? Um, and part of being in a supervisory position, um, especially because right now I supervise two teams, I, um, I, I don't have to carry an a student facing advising caseload. Um, as a supervisor, of course, you know, there's the, there's the situation where my advisor can say, let me tell my boss about this and they'll take care of it. So like I get like the so-called escalated cases. Um, but as far as like the routine advising interactions go, I, I, there's not a high expectation for me to carry a, a caseload or as, as big of a caseload as my, as my advisors do. And so because of that, my position being not student facing, um, it, it, it lended itself to um, um, a remote, a remote work arrangement. Um, and so during COVID in my personal life, um, going back to uh, my love for the PNW, um, during COVID times, um, we realized that living in Santa Cruz was extremely expensive, um, very expensive. I mean, if people Google it, you'll see. Um, anyway, so we were trying to figure out how we can save money. And during, the, uh, during that time, uh, we moved to Portland. Um, and then when conversations about uh, coming back, uh, the, the return to work was happening, uh, we were, we, my husband and I were talking about how, well, we're not, uh, we're not financially ready to, to move back to a place that's um, where the cost of living is so high. And so thankfully, both of our jobs are not um, student facing roles. He's more operations. And for me, um, I, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not always student facing. And so part of our, one of our goals was we definitely wanted to maintain connections to our, to our, to our departments and our units. And so now, we basically go back um, regularly. Um, so uh, in September and October and November, we made uh, uh, like one week visits um, down to Santa Cruz. Um, the As far as the work goes, um, I will say we work pretty efficiently at home, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say that we're not efficient at the office, but more that the, the, the reason for being in the office is different. Um, so like the, the, the moment when someone pops into your office just to say hi or just to chat with you, you could you could see it as an interruption, but also it's the purpose of being there is to have those chats, have that connection, have that FaceTime with people, mm -hmm. actually with our masks on because there's a mask mandate on campus. So um, yeah, so the purpose of being in the office on a regular basis is to maintain those connections. Um, and then for the other parts of our time, like 75% of our time where we're doing our work from home. And that's worked out okay so far. Um, and it's also probably worked out more better than I expected because most of my team, um, they are on a hybrid schedule. So they, my advisors do carry a caseload or they do, have, they do spend the majority of their work time meeting with students. But um, quite a few of my advisors, they work either a three, two schedule, which is three days in, two days out, or they might be working a four days in, one day out schedule. Mm -hmm. and that's also been really beneficial for them. But for that reason, though, most of our meetings are still on Zoom because on any one day, it's like, I don't know who's in and who's out. So we're just going to do it on Zoom because everyone has a computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I'm sure there are people listening that are like, oh, I wonder if I could take that back to, to my institution or my, my job and potentially do something like that or even yeah. sort of something hybrid. But I guess, um, you know, 
you're supervising. So how has that been like for like the individuals that you supervise? Have they been uh, fine with that? Have there been any challenges or has it is worked pretty well? Yeah, I mean, hmm. Hopefully if my, my advisors listen to this, they'll agree with what I'd say. Um, my sense of it is that it has worked out pretty well. Um, I think and one thing that we learned when we moved into the Zoom world, right, during COVID is um, maybe you've experienced this too, Matt, like your, the number of meetings that you had exploded, like everything became a meeting, right? Because you're ab- you can't have those like popping in, hello, just to, for a quick chat. You had to schedule things, right? So the meeting explosions. Um, so um, the, but I think that this is this is a practice that we've kept up with, which is having um, meetings, really utilizing our group chats, um, finding ways of staying connected, um, like things like we celebrate each other's birthdays, we send things to each other's houses during birthdays. Um, during my in-person visits, I, I make sure that we have like a group lunch or maybe a group hangout after work, um, like. Uh, some, yeah, some kind of activity that builds team morale. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of supervision is about um, helping your team feel like you're moving forward, keeping up morale, right? Because I always tell this to my advisors, like they're probably a lot better at at the work that they do because they do it on such a regular basis. Um, and it's not like I'm a supervisor because I, it's not like I'm a supervisor because I know how to do things better. It's just that I happen to be the person who's, who has been given this opportunity to like keep our group together moving forward. Right. And so, um, I, I think that part of it is being really intentional about being very accessible to my advisors, whether it's texting with me, whether it's G chats whether they just hop into my Zoom office. I keep my Zoom room open all day at work so anyone can click on my Zoom link um, to simulate the, hi, just quick chat. Um, So I keep my Zoom room open all day at work. So I'm very accessible to my advisors. Um, I share my calendar with them so they know like if I'm not responding to them, it's like, why is, oh, oh, Winnie's in a meeting, that's why. Mm -hmm. So that's something that um, I've I've been really conscious, conscientious of, um, of being accessible and also being really accessible to my supervisors, right? Um, when they, when they want to schedule a meeting, um, with very short little notice, I do try my best to be very accessible on that. And just, um, because, uh, I think that's important. Um, it's to, to be, to, to let people know that you're not just like in your bedroom somewhere taking a nap. All right. Um, so, so far, I think it's been okay. Um, if there's feedback, please do give it to me though. If any of my advisors are listening. Yeah. <laughs> And you've been very um, done a lot within with Nakata. You've had various uh, positions mm-hmm. within Region Nine, California State Liaison, Communication Social Media Coordinator. Um, even outside Nakata, you were um, you worked on one of the University of California Academic Advising Conferences as huh. a, a co-chair for Programs Committee. And most recently, you just started uh, in the Emerging Leaders Program within Nakata. Uh, so something some people are you know are excited to do or just are unsure of. Like, how did you find out about the program for for EOP, and what was what was kind of like the deciding factor to be like, hey, let me let me apply for this? Yeah, okay. So I'll talk about EOP and I'll talk about professional development. Yeah. So EOP, I think Matt, I have you to thank for this oh, because okay. <laughs> um, I think somewhere along the line, because actually, no one at you was it. That's a lie. I think someone at UH Manoa must have actually Matt. Matt was in the EOP. Okay. Okay. The other so Matt. Not, Matt not yeah, not me. Okay. So yeah. the other well, Matt. Well, yes. two Matts. Both okay. Matts, I would say. Both 
both Matt's, Matt Martin and Matt Ng, um, uh, were uh, exposed me or show, uh, let, like helped me become aware of this particular program. Mm -hmm. And um, for the longest time, I was trying to, because you know, with professional development, it's like always a balance, right? Because you actually have a 40 hour job. Mm -hmm. that pays you a salary but professional development is extremely important and I was trying to balance out you know um my my, my own growth and my work um and so for a couple of years or so now even I'm still um on the region nine steering committee which it doesn't take up a ton of time but it does take up that little bit of time that you would do other things with and so I finally decided to apply to the ELP program for the 2021-2023 cohort because um, this particular year I'm transitioning off of the um, Region 9 Steering Committee. And um, one of my goals is to uh, branch out, out of the region um, to go beyond Region 9 to see what's out there. And I feel like the ELP program um, will uh, help me to uh, to meet that particular goal. And the good thing is with the ELP program, what they're really looking for, or I think they're looking for is, um, you don't have to have specific concrete goals of like ABC, this is what I need to do and this is my action plan to get there. But it, they are looking for people who are um, really keen to get more involved in the association. Um, and I think maybe that was, that came across during my application process is, I wanna get involved in the kata, I've done the regional thing and I want to see what else is out there. Um, and so that was kind of what uh, pushed me to apply to the ELP program for this particular year. Yeah. Nice. And then you got paired with, is it Wendy Troxel? Yes. The uh, Wendy Troxel. The, yes. <laughs> yes. So how's, I mean, I know it's only just recently mm -hmm. you, you started with, yeah. with this cohort, but how's it been so far uh, when, when you found out like, oh my gosh, Dr. Wendy Troxel, I'm going to be, she'll be, she'll be my mentor. Yeah, I mean, uh, quite pleased. Um, I watch a lot of Great British, the Great British Baking Show. It's like chuffed. I'm chuffed. I'm not using that correctly. Anyway, we need Colin here. Um, so I, I was very, very happy to be paired with uh, Wendy as my mentor. Um, uh, I was particularly uh, drawn to like Wendy specifically because of her uh, her strengths in assessment. Um, and this is an area that I, I don't know if I want to um, develop my career in that assessment specifically, but I definitely want to learn more about it. And um, I, so that's one thing that really um, that it, in in a, in a few times that I've had to connect with Wendy one on one so far because it's, it's only we have only done like two meetings so far. But it's just really nice to hear someone talk about what they're doing in Nakata. And then on top of it, it's just beyond the assessment piece and beyond the research piece of these are all Wendy's strengths. But beyond that, it's just Wendy just knows so many people. Um, and so uh, that's part of like why I really like being her mentee is if I mention to her about a particular interest and she'll know someone who, can, who, that she, who she can connect me with. It's kind of like when you're an advisor mm -hmm. and you have a student who's like, let me email general general email at college.edu but it's like oh let me actually connect you with Winnie from this particular place who can help you with this stuff so that's kind of like what Wendy uh, that's who Wendy is to me it's like when I talk about or when I mention the thing that I'm interested in um, Wendy's um, also really just great at connecting me to um, uh, different people so that's how it's been going so far um, I now have my so far we have um, the uh, you know in the beginning you have to decide what your commitment is or what your goal is with with each other and 
our goal, our commitment is to meet once a month. Um, we're in different places. So we're going to have, we have zoom meetings basically once a month. Awesome. And just a little plug, uh, if you want to, um, hear Winnie, more of Winnie's experience on the Regional Leaders Program for Region 9, there will be a, our talk story panel about the Regional Leaders Program, uh, with various people who've been in or are currently in the Emerging Leaders Program. So if you're an ACADA member, check out the future emails for promotion on that. And as we wind down on this interview, um, on the UC Santa Cruz website, uh, they kind of list everyone's bios on there. And it listed that you love going on food adventures. So what was the latest food adventure that you've been on? Oh, well, oh gosh. So, you know, in the before times, Uh it would be any new... Any new restaurant that would pop up in town, I would get, you know, a friend or two together mm-hmm. um, to do that. Um, but, you know, in, in the current times, I, I am being very careful. But um, actually, um, we were uh, uh, we were uh, really fortunate to go to a um, am I allowed to do plugs or mention names? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> OK, so like most so our most recent one, which is actually two weeks ago, we went to a what do you call those? Like a, like a set meal where the chef decides this is the menu that he wants to share with, with the, um, with people who patronize this restaurant. Anyway, Cafe Rowan is a, is a restaurant that's a, a local restaurant that just opened up during COVID times. And my husband and I really wanted to support what the, the chef is doing. So it's a, uh, it's like a Pan American type restaurant so that's my that's my really odd plug i was not prepared to answer this question very well <laughs> you said it was cafe rowan yeah cafe uh, rowan all right it's a really so, small place yeah and if you go um use the promo code when he said i get 20 percent off just kidding no there is no promo code but cafe rowan if you're listening and you want to sponsor our podcast awesome <laughs> but thank you Wendy, for being on and we've reached the end if Anyone has any questions? Maybe they have more questions on food adventures or peer advising or um, your journey into all these different areas or working remote, things like that. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Oh, yeah. Um, always welcome an email, uh, winnie.tang at ucsc.edu. Um, or you can find me on Instagram, I suppose. No, actually, that's a private account. So okay. anyway, reach out, to me, reach out to me first via winnie.ping at ucsc.edu. Then become friends and then Instagram. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, Winnie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great talking with you. Winnie, thank you for letting us in on your amazing higher ed journey and your involvement within Nakata and academic advising. A couple more shout outs. This one from Mike Drew, who on Twitter wrote, listening this morning, I was very much enjoying the insight provided by Kira Solon regarding her doctoral studies and choosing a dissertation topic. And the connection with Craig McGill is fantastic. So much support and motivation there. Love it. And lastly, from Olivia Miller, who also on Twitter wrote, I know I say this every two weeks, but the latest episode of Adventures in Advising is really great. Probably my favorite episode. Hey, thanks, Olivia. That's so kind of you. And now the pressure's on. Hopefully you continue liking the rest of these episodes and they continue to be your favorites. So next up is my boss and the best one ever, Eduardo Mendoza from Cal State San Bernardino. (music) 
Our next guest is Eduardo Mendoza. Ed is the director of the Office of Advising and Academic Services at California State University San Bernardino. Ed has been working in academic advising for the past 15 years and as the director of advising academic services for the past six years. Some of the programs that the office coordinates are advising for undeclared students, graduation pledge programs, students on academic probation, students with excessive units, and most recently advising all first year students. Ed earned his BA in administration with a concentration in finance in 2003 and his master's in public administration in 2007, both from CSUSB. Ed enjoys traveling with his wife, mainly to find great places to eat, and I would say is a foodie and world traveler. Ed has also uh, also raises many dogs, but also says that his wife is the one that brings them home and that they rescue. So Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, well, I know it's a long time coming, especially because you're my boss. And so I've been looking <laughs> to have you on this podcast for a while. So I'm glad everything has worked out uh, with both our schedules to make this happen. So can you talk to listeners about your path into higher ed and academic advising? I can. Um, it might be similar to some. It might be different from some. But uh, my path was I attended as a first-generation college student. I started college at California State University, San Bernardino. I wanted to be an architect. Uh, thought, okay, I'll just do my GEs here and then transfer to a local university that has architecture since CSUSB did not. But as I got involved, as I got connected, as I felt like the university was part of me in a way, I, I decided to change my major and I chose admin, finance, concentration. I was always good with math. I was always good with numbers and I figured something like that in the future. And my dream was when I switched my major to finance, someday I'm going to go live in New York because that's where finance is. That's where the financial market is. And I always thought of New York, and if you can, well, for those listeners, in my office, I have a picture of New York that I've had for many years because that was always a dream location of mine career-wise, but then also travel. And as Matt mentioned, I love a lot of food, so all, all the food places I can find in New York. But as I was a student here, I took the scenic route is how I say it to graduation. I didn't graduate in four years. I didn't graduate in five years. I graduated six plus years and and that I think made me understand what I really want to do. If I would have graduated in four years, which probably would have been a good thing, I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing now. Uh, reason it took me a little longer, obviously the change of major, um, but also because I got really involved with school in terms of student government, uh, organizations, student union board, uh, and that alone made me or introduced me to administration uh, on campus. I got to be in meetings with the president, be in meetings with the vice president. And I said, I said to myself then, they seem to have a nice job. They go to meetings, get paid good money, working on a college campus. What could be better than that? So I said, how can I figure out a way to work on a college campus and not have to take classes anymore? Because I wasn't always a fan of classes. I, I, Matt knows me for a long time here. I, I was probably that student that probably didn't buy the books all the time. School came rather easy at times, and I did enough to get by. Uh, looking back, I, I don't regret it, but looking back, maybe I could have done things differently in terms of 
pushing more, pushing myself more in, in those senses. But that made me want to work at a university. I was more on the student affairs side, working at the rec center. Like I said, the student government. But the first office that gave me an opportunity to work on campus was the admissions office. And working in admissions, understanding what students needed to do to come to our university and then becoming a recruiter, going out to community colleges, going out to high schools, and not only talking about the our university, but talking about college in our community as a whole was important to me. Going to, going to classes that, instead of the avid classes, instead of the classes where students talk about college all the time, going to some ESL classes, going to uh, other uh, students who probably weren't thinking of college or university. And it was important for me to, to connect with those students, especially because I saw myself in them in terms of first generation, in terms of not only first generation college, but first generation in the United States. Uh, that was important to me. So I enjoyed the recruitment part of it. I was really advising students on what to do to transfer to apply to the university. An opportunity came up in the advising office. I applied. I got it, and I've been here for 15 years, uh, and I can't see myself going anywhere else. I could really see myself retiring in this position. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Yeah, because sometimes there's, there's the thought of, well, you... You should work at multiple places, uh, like different institutions. And a lot of your higher experience has really just been CSUSB. But you've worked in admissions, worked in advising. You've had different positions, evaluator, um, recruiter, director, or academic success coordinator, and then director. What do you think about that kind of thought of, you know, if you stay at the one place, maybe you're not opening the doors for other opportunities, or maybe you don't need to? I have heard that, and I've... I mean, I've even heard it as extreme of I'm too scared to cut the umbilical cord because <laughs> I went to school here. I work here. This is the only university I know. But but at the same time, I find a purpose at this school. I, I find a reason to to improve. Um, I know the CSU as a whole, not just San Marino, is how do we improve our graduation numbers and what role I can play in that um, right now? focus is on equity gaps and what role can I play in that? So there's always a new challenge. And not only that, I mean, sometimes it feels like a different university when there's different bosses <laughs> often or when there's different presidents and the, the leadership is different. Um, it's an adjustment all the time. So I can't see myself at another school. One of the benefits that I think we've had here in California, and you know, Matt, here, uh, you and I have had the privilege of being on a steering committee for the California Collaborative, the CalCAN now, which is stands for California Counselors Academic Advising Network that we're doing with NACADA. That allows me to connect with those other university folks, whether at different CSUs or UCs or community college and kind of see, hear from them and what they're experiencing and how to connect with them. With this whole associate's degree for transfer students that we have here in California, 
I think we're, we're going to have more opportunity to work with community colleges. So it's an easier transition for students from the community college transferring to a four-year university and make sure their graduation isn't delayed because our different course numberings or different um, policies that we have amongst the schools. So I, I, I have heard the saying you mentioned about working at multiple locations, but I mean, after what's now 17 years working in higher ed, I, I, not one year has been the same. One of the things I forgot to write uh, on my bio, one of the things that we've coordinated over all these years has been orientation for all incoming students. And not one single orientation has ever been the same from year to year. So I, I appreciate that at the same time. It also gives me gray hairs, uh, but it, there's nothing can be perfect. There's a, there's a, it's a nice balance between the, the positives of everything and the negatives of everything. Yeah, and one of the things I think for you, it's like you can teach anyone the skills to, to do a job, but you can't teach someone to be a human being. And I think for you, like your personality, you've, you connect so much with people, which I think was what was great about you being a recruiter, but then also getting to move to advising academic services as an advisor and then as a director, you still have that interaction with students that in this case, you can kind of see their growth from the time they start until when they graduate uh, in most cases. And I guess with that, I mean, that's something I've always appreciated about you, but also jealous at the same time, because I know when <laughs> I first started in this, I mean, we worked in admissions together, but I was a student assistant at the time. But then when I worked here, started working here and advising academic services, students would come in and be like, can I meet with Ed? Oh, but Matt's available or this other advisor available. <laughs> well, I don't want to see them. I want to see Ed because Ed's nice. Ed's helped me. And then it's like, can't we just get a chance you know, to, to talk with the student? But you, you've you made those connections and and it's really shown through through those years. And that, that comes back to a quote that I've always said, and you've heard me say this, and it kind of applies in so many different areas of our, of our lives. Uh, Maya Angelou said, people may not remember what you said. People may not remember what you did, but people will always remember how you made them feel. And that's so important to me. Um, like I said, being in the shoes of first gen, first first gen, not only university, but in the country. Uh, but and we talk about it more and more now. I don't I don't know if this topic was big 15 years ago, but the the connection that students need to feel to university so that we can retain them so they can graduate, that connection is so important. And I always and, then, and this is thanks to my parents, right? Treat people the way you want to be treated. Uh, be friendly. Um, people get upset when they don't understand something. So if we could just explain things to them, not many students get upset. I mean, it might happen still, but if you explain things to them in a way that they can understand it, um, they leave happy. They leave like they've been heard and, and they'll come back. I mean, but over the years, to go back to your comment of they would ask for Ed, to go back now, now there's many students asking for Matt, right? Now there's many students asking for all the advisors. And it's not that you're better, but that's who they met with. Um, and then the, then the other advisors as well. As you know, we're, we're fortunate to work with the folks we work in our office because everyone's great. Everyone has their unique style of advising and their own connection with students. But, and, and every student's different. So, one of the things that we do in our office, and and maybe you have a question about this later, so I apologize if I'm jumping ahead or not. We have a advising center kind of approach. Instead of you, Matt, you only see 
these majors or instead of you, man, you only see this alphabet. When students come in, they can be with any one of us because what if they already have a connection with Matt and they're and then they change their major? I don't want I want them to keep that connection with Matt. Or what if they have a connection with John or Saul or or any of the other advisors? It's important that we are available because every student is different. They're going to find their connection, not only with the staff advisor, but we have wonderful peer advisors as well, right? That they might find a connection with them. So I don't even know if that was a question or I answered a question, but I'm glad we talked about that piece. Yeah, no, (laughs) I like the way this was going. And I think this definitely leads into this next question, which is, you know, what does advising and academic services do? You mentioned a little bit in your bio and it seems like it's an all services rendered office. Like we literally will meet, can meet any student, any first year student is going to have some sort of contact with our office, whether they start here at the university or at some point during their time at the university. So I guess, can you talk more about what advising academic services does uh, and why, why do we have all of these different programs? How, how do we make it happen? And for those that know me, I, I always like to give the extra information because people know where I come from, the history behind it. At CSUSB, our, our university was founded in 1965. Our director, our previous director before I uh, took on the director role, he retired. He, was, he, he got hired here in 1989 um, as a director of advising. That's the first time we had advising really on our campus. We've always had faculty, of course. We've always had faculty being able to guide students and and guide them to graduation. But to hire professionals to focus on advising at our school was like 1989. And I remember some of the things they had going to Nakata back in the early 90s and and learning more from it and, and coming back and being able to create new programs like probation. Before, in the early 90s, when you met with students who were below 2.0, that was considered early intervention because uh, students normally didn't come until they were at a point of dismissal or disqualification. But for us to start meeting with them as soon as they fell below 2.0, that was considered early intervention. And I believe some schools still have the, the process of when you fall below 2.0 for the first time, you do something online or you uh, fill out a form or you submit something online where we've always met with the students one-on-one. We were the only advising office on campus. So therefore everything advising fell to the one office. There were students on probation, uh, probably in the early 2000s. Why don't we create a graduation pledge program? The students are willing to commit to graduating in four years. How about we help them in that process, eliminate some of the barriers monitor them a little bit more closely to make sure they're taking the right classes. So we started that program in early 2000s. And obviously the CSU system created uh, something called California Promise that continues that graduation amongst the different CSUs on our campus. Uh, We have the undeclared population. So whether the university is undeclared, exploratory, undecided uh, on our campus or undeclared, so who advises them if they don't have a department to go to? So we've always advised undeclared students since. And like I said, we were the only advising office before. But probably, and Matt, correct me here, probably about nine, ten years ago is when we started really exploding on our campus the amount of advisors we have in different colleges. 
in our our campuses we have four undergrad colleges and then um, that we're really focusing on in terms of the major advising so we have professional advisors i think we're up to maybe about just over 20 something total uh about maybe mid 20s 25 advisors on our campus when i started in 2006 in this office it was a total of three of us <laughs> advising everyone so sometimes as a director i have to make sure i'm paying attention to that and not saying hey everyone you can advise 500 students in the next two weeks because that's probably what i used to do back in the day so I, i'm i'm careful when i do that um but at the same time that's where it came from Matt, in terms of the different programs so the pledge program now we've expanded that and you being the coordinator for our graduation pledge now not only have we expanded it in terms of number of students back in the early 2000s maybe 10 students maybe 20 students maybe a cohort of 40 students we're over a thousand total students in the pledge program not only for four-year graduation but for the transfer students, now we have a two-year graduation pledge program for them as well. So that's been helpful. But then the excessive unit students. So some people call them super seniors, but the proper term is excessive unit. And we've been monitoring those students because one of the things that we realized, we had a good amount of students who were, what's, what's the word we use in, in education here? Career students. <laughs> or professional students, they wanted to be a student for as long as they could for different reasons. Maybe it's, uh, so when we started looking at that, it, was, it wasn't it was so much about, I want more financial aid, I'm gonna keep being, there may be a student or two like that, but it was really, I don't know if I'm confident enough to leave school yet and start my career. I don't know if I'm ready. And I think that's where we come in. That when we meet with excessive units, it, it isn't to say, hey, you've been here long enough, time to go. It's really, hey, why have you been here so long? I noticed you've changed your major a couple of times. Maybe we can assist on that. Uh, maybe you don't need three majors. Maybe a minor in that is enough. So it's really a discussion and really to give them the confidence. You are ready. Maybe an internship next semester so you feel more ready. Maybe having a conversation with someone, doing a shadowing with someone to give those students that confidence. So we work with those excessive unit students as well. And this year, we're starting to work our, with our first year uh, students. We, we normally take in about 2,000 to 3,000 freshmen on every year and about maybe 3,000 transfer students. So we're, we're gonna work with all the freshmen, all the first year students moving forward. And it's important. I mean, we have colleagues uh, and we have one actually, our location, Matt, you being an alumni of Educational Opportunity Program, EOP. They've been around in California for 50 years or more now. They've always met with students in their first year. It's important to do really intense, intrusive advising in the first year so they can understand things, so they can learn things, how to do things. So in the future, second, third, fourth years, it's not so much intrusive. It's when we see something, when we, when we see a red flag and we can bring them in and, hey, we noticed you're off track. How do we help you? What do we need to do to, to get back on track? That's what we want to do in our office in terms of making sure. So that's why, I mean, Matt, you know, in the last month and a half, we met with probably just a little over 1,500 students to make sure that we're all ready to register, not only for the next semester, but let's also plan out the next full year. Let's check in with them to see how they're doing. So all those pieces, they kind of relate, right? The, every time we meet with students, 
it's only a 30 minute appointment right now or during walk-ins or doing zoom drop-ins or whenever they can it's really the check-in meet them where they're at and kind of guide that discussion in a way it's unfortunate that advising has it seems to be a little bit more prescriptive than it used to be i wish it could be more developmental and i think it's finding that balance between giving the student what they need but at the same time asking open-ended questions that they might not be aware of so they can start thinking about the other stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a work in progress. And so, yeah, I mean, especially taking on a first year advising, kind of had to readjust, but I think we've been making it work and there's always room for improvement, a lot of it, but yeah, I mean, some of it might seem a little prescriptive, but with some of the first years, you know, there's only so much that they might retain from orientation. So right now it might seem a little bit per, more prescriptive, but we'll see in spring semester how, how it goes. And maybe we do get more of that developmental approach going. But uh, to connect to an earlier uh, comment or question you had about different universities, I think it's wonderful that there's always a work in progress. How can we still make things better? Um, I think if we ever get to a point where we think it's perfect, and maybe that's the time I retire. <laughs> Don't they say retire at the highest point and, and, and go into the, the sunset? Uh, but no, I, I think it's great that we try to find things to improve. Um, in 10 years, it's going to be a different generation of students. <laughs> and we need to make sure we adjust to them. And I mean, I think our university has done a great job over the last few years. where We're not blaming the students anymore. We're more of a, what's, what's the word here, Matt? Uh, a student focus approach, a student-centered approach as opposed to uh, the school or how do we used to say it? Are the students ready for school? How about or is the university ready for the students? And I think we've done a better job at that uh, recently. And because of that, I think that's why our graduation numbers have gone up. I think that's why we're doing, we have more impacted majors. That's why we're, uh, we're doing better, but there's still much more room, especially right now with the focus is on the equity gaps. And our equity gaps for our school, when I say that, it's the URM population, so uh, underrepresented minorities, uh, our first-generation students, uh, our Pell Grant recipients. And then on our campus, we're also looking, <clears throat> there's an equity gap between males and females. Our males aren't doing as well as the females are doing in terms of graduation and, and retention and persistence kind of numbers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, it's always looking at ways to improve. I had a guest on a, a couple of episodes ago, TJ, and they had said, like, essentially, like, if you if you believe yourself to be the expert, then you stop learning and stop growing. So it's always looking at yourself to like, what, what can we do next? What can we improve on next? And you're talking about different institutions. And one of those is you go to Nakata conferences or an advising conference or a CalCan conference, and you get to meet other individuals from other institutions and go to their presentations, network with them, learn from them. 
that's essentially what happened in 2013 uh, when I uh, went to the one of the Nakata conferences and I went to a health science um, presentation um, and they were talking about their students on probation and how they have like an independent study and kind of took some of their information, brought it back, talked to you about it. And then we got to revamp our university studies independent study course and also got to update some of the uh, sophomore success course uh, that our office um, also has. Can you talk more about the independent study and the uh, course uh, that, that we have? I, I can. Before I go into those two courses that we've had, I want to make sure I, I, I say this. For those that have been listening to this podcast for some time, you probably have gotten to know Matt and his personality a little. But Matt didn't mention that in 2013, he was only on the job for maybe a few weeks, a month or two, when we said, let's go to Nakata. And he came and he was new to advising. And to no surprise of any of you, Matt came back with ideas. Matt came back to how do we can improve. When most students, most not students, most uh, folks that start with advising, let me just let me let me get my feet on the ground. Let me let me get some balance here and learn some things. But we knew right away. Let let's take Matt to this Nakata conference, and I think it was here locally in LA area. I think USC might have might have hosted it. But uh, we came back knowing, okay, Matt 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 was the ideal candidate. Matt was the right person for us to hire because he already had all those ideas um, coming in. So. Uh, I say that because I wanted to make sure everyone knew how wonderful and lucky we are to have Matt in our office. But yeah, I, one of the things is I mentioned earlier, 30 minute appointments, and it's not that we can't make them longer, but how do we meet with all students as much as possible? At least back in, in 2013, when it was really just our advising office, right? And we see all the students on academic probation. On our campus, CSUSB, we have about 18, 19,000 undergrad students. And we, on quarter to quarter, now semester to semester, since we just switched the semesters, we typically have about a thousand or just under a thousand students on academic probation. Their, their university GPA or, and or their cumulative GPA is below 2.0. So how do we meet with all those students in more than 30 minutes? So in those 30-minute appointments, we, we dig a little. What, what's the real reason that you're not doing well? We know it's not intelligence. It's something, right? Life is getting in the way, motivation, uh, time management, financial reason. There, there's many reasons students aren't doing good academically, and it's, and, and it's not because of an intelligence thing. So in those 30 minutes, we start digging. And hopefully, we have an opportunity to meet with them again in the future. But if they get off academic probation, then they don't necessarily have to come in because there's no more red flag in that sense. So one of the things we developed was how can we meet with students longer than 30 minutes? The students that in that conversation, we know, okay, it's more than just a conversation. It's more than me just pointing them in a direction, a whole quarter with them, a whole semester with them, uh, training them, showing them how to might be beneficial. So we have the two courses, our USCD, 2000 now in our semester system is a course where students can enroll in. It's only a one unit class now in the semester. So 15 hours total we have with them. And what are the basic things that we just talked about? How to deal with stress, uh, motivation, time management, how to be organized. 
And guess what? These are all the things that, Matt, you mentioned earlier. These are the skill sets that aren't just going to make you successful in school, but these are the skill sets that can make you successful in your career later on or multiple careers that you'll have later on. So the skill set is, is what, it's what we're trying to develop in that. But then there's some students who they need that individualized, not a classroom. And before I go move on from the classroom, the other wonderful thing that we've learned from the classroom, because I've taught the class, Matt's taught the class, it kind of becomes a like a cohort, like a group. They start sharing things with each other that probably are very private uh, to that may they may have never shared otherwise, but they see that, hey, they look around the room and they're like, all of us are struggling. All of us have a reason. And when they start sharing their stories of why they're in the position they are in, they start realizing, some may say, you know what, maybe mine isn't that bad and I could do better. Or you know what, I can relate to that. And they start, there was one time a student said, oh, I work at Disneyland and, and um, I work a lot of hours and the drive, the distance. Disneyland's probably about an hour from our campus right now. And they say, and that's why I struggle. That's why I haven't been paying much attention. I've been trying to focus on my career instead of finishing my education. By the end of that quarter, that student invited the whole class to Disneyland through his passes, through this. And they became, like I said, uh, I wouldn't go as far as a family, but they, they really started depending on each other and they can start trusting each other. And sometimes, as you know, uh, students who are on academic probation is because they just haven't found someone enough to trust to start asking those questions that they probably should have asked before they fell on academic probation. So the other course, uh, the individualized one, the USCD 27 that we had, that we've had, that one is let's meet bi-weekly. So instead of just the 30 minutes once a quarter or once a semester, how about we meet bi-weekly? And it's more of a check-in. It's it's more us as an advisor holding them accountable to um to what they're doing in classes so the first time we meet we get a copy of their syllabus and we and we hold on to it so then when i see him in two weeks i'm going to say oh i see that you have a test tomorrow are you are you ready for it have you prepared for it how have you prepared for it having those discussions oh i see that you just turned in an assignment how did that go or have you gone to the writing center have you gone to the tutoring center to help you with some of these things by the end and it hasn't filled yet and Matt, you can you can chime in here too. Of the students I've had in those individualized contracts or study contracts, at the end of every term, can I do this again next semester? Can I do this again next quarter, please? And of course we say, of course, we don't need to sign up for the course anymore, but you're always welcome to come and meet, check in with us. If And they, percentage wise, about 80, 90% do much better. Um, they start turning it around and it's nice to see some of those students a couple years later when they're graduating and they come and give you a thank you card. Not that you were the difference, but you were a, maybe a spark or maybe you were, you said something that may have made a difference for them. Goes back to that quote that I said, right? You, you made them feel different. You made them feel like they could do this. This isn't hard for them. But would you agree, Matt, on terms of the students that you've had in these classes before? Yeah, I mean, and and I think what's nice with with the class is like it's it's a smaller class size, so we're looking at twelve on average, up to twenty max. But it gives a lot of individual time as well to the students, and they really get to be heard. 
Now, one of the assignments that I took, one of the class assignments I took from you was you did like the 101 things activity. Um, can you talk more about why you had that as one of your assignments for your students? Yeah, at one time I had, so I, I had the privilege of carpooling with someone uh, to work and he not only was a director of our student life, our student engagement office, student leadership and development, we called it, but he was also a motivational speaker uh, going to universities, talking to, to students. And he wrote a chapter in a book one time, and it was about the 101 things, places, or people he wanted to meet, see, do kind of thing, right? And I said, that's a good idea. I'm going to start doing this for the class. So I, as an assignment, it was, okay, write down 101 things that you either want to be, people you want to meet or people you want or places you want to go. And every student started writing things down. They would get stuck around number 20 or number 30. And they needed to write 101. And I look at them and I said, there's these to-do lists, right? And folks normally do to-do lists on a daily basis. And when you do a to-do list, it could be five, six things. I'm asking you to do a to-do list for the rest of your life. So if you can find five or six things in a day, I'm sure you can find 101 things for the rest of your life. But it made them think about it. It made them start. Uh, and then towards the end of the semester, not at the beginning, but once they start feeling comfortable with each other and once they build that rapport with each other, they, they're, they're more than happy to share their list. Now, time-wise doesn't permit for them to read all 101 but they will read a good 20, 30 of them in front of the class. And it would be neat to see a student say, you know, one day I want to go um, jump out of an airplane. And it hasn't failed where another student might say, you know what, I worked there. And they'll connect them. And that's why I tell students, not only do you have to write it down, but you have to speak it out as well. Because when you speak it out, someone's going to be that network for you, be that connection for you. And it changes. The, the person I carpooled with, I always tease him about it. He goes, when he was a college student, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry Holly Berry. <laughs> that, was, that was on his 101 list. He said, now that I'm happily married, maybe, my, maybe I now change it to I want to meet Holly Berry. <laughs> uh, and you change, obviously, as you guys all know, listening to this, our, our thoughts change, our our interests change and, and we can always modify it. But one of the good things about that 101 list, at least for that person that I was carpooling with, every year, one of the other things we do in society, we always have to come up with our New Year's resolution. What are we, what are we gonna accomplish next year? Well, you have a list of 101 things. And every year he would go to it and, okay, I'm gonna focus on these three or four or five things this year to make sure I do. Uh, so that's always neat. I still have my list. I wrote down a list I have at home and things that I want to accomplish. As Matt mentioned, this is one of the reasons I like to travel because I like to accomplish some of these things. Um, Great Wall of China is still on my list. But one of the things, and, and Matt knows this, uh, one of my favorite things to do, or one of my number one on my list for a long time was to run with the Bulls in uh, Pamplona, Spain. And 
and I was able to do it when I was younger. I can't, I don't know if I can do it now or if I want to, or if my wife will allow me to now, since my wife is more of an animal activist. So I, I don't know if I'll be able to anymore, but that was a, an accomplishment. But you have to write things down. You have to speak it out. You have to talk to people about it, not be ashamed of it, because these are your to-do lists for life. So it, it's a nice uh, activity to do, and, and that was always um, a fun thing to hear from the students. I, t- I Now, I always preface that keep it PG, because <laughs> uh, you know college students can take it in so many different directions, but uh, they were pretty good at it. Nice, yeah. That was always a popular assignment, and you know, you kind of took things back full circle with, with your favorite quote. And I think this too kind of goes full circle with attending conferences or being in, in Nakata is you're able to borrow ideas from others, learn from others, bring it back to your institution, um, develop something or, you know, implement it and improve upon something. So in this case, got to take some of what we learned from Nakata conferences, improve upon an independent study and a class that we had for, for our office for students. But then also we got to present on it as well at Nakata conferences and at our California um, advising conferences. So then able to share what we've learned based off that and then get to network with others. So it keeps going full circle, which which is awesome. And and that full circle continues because as as you know, for all those who presented, there's a lot of good questions that are asked in your presentation. And it leads to different conversations that makes you think, okay, that was a good conversation we had in our presentation. How do we modify? How can we make better? It goes back to how can we still improve everything we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. And for the last six years, you've been the, the director of advising academic services. So as a director, like what does your role um, entail? So as a middle manager, so when I when I first started in this office, it was in 06. And I don't know if this is across the country or across the, the world, how this is going, but it seems like there's more layers than ever before. Uh, the director of advising back then uh, reported to a dean of undergraduate studies, and they reported to the provost who reported to the president. Now there's a couple more layers. I still believe this director position is ideal for me because I'm at the table where decisions are being made, but I'm also meeting with students and directly with them. Um, Just last week, our advisors were full with appointments. So Ellie, who is the academic success coordinator, and I, well, you know what? There's still quite a bit of students, and we want to make sure the registrar signs. So let's do a lot of walk-ins. And just this morning, I met with another student who's hoping graduating next semester. So I'm still constantly meeting with students because that's very important to me in terms of that connection. And then that's what I enjoy, right? But I'm still, as a director, able to be at a table or in a discussion that's making decisions that can make a difference long-term for our students. But one of the main things as a middle manager, as I call it, is how do we receive information? How do we receive mandates, requirements, new strategies, new focuses, and translate that into how we're actually going to approach it? How how are we going to meet these needs? How, from our lens, who are meeting with students, can we apply it? So that, that's one angle, right? But then from the other angle, always talking to you guys. Um, and we always try, uh, even when we're at home, we try to try to do this. And when I say at home, I'm during the COVID 
time where our campus was closed and we were all working remotely from home, I always like to have think tanks amongst the staff. Hey, th- I, I just got this news. How do you guys think we should um, apply this or how should we roll this out? And we're just, we have some seasoned folks in our office that give great opinions, great thoughts, and then together we make a decision. Um, there's sometimes I have to make a decision more on the budgetary side, more on the personnel side, but any decision that's going to really apply to the students, I'm always trying to include all the advisors because that's important. And, and not only that, but one of the things as a director, I think it's important for me to always give opportunity wherever uh, a staff member wants, needs, has asked for. With all the things that we coordinate, what are the things that you enjoy in pulling out your strengths, right? Uh, Matt is very organized. So anything that I need to make sure stays organized, Matt is someone I really think about all the time. Uh, but he has a lot of skill sets. Obviously, uh, one of the things, that, and maybe Matt and I will have the discussion later, he's a great public speaker. He's great at presenting, but at the same time, uh, maybe there's an opportunity where he can be a, a public speaker for a presentation, for a, an orientation or anything, and that's something Matt can decide if he wants to do because I, I always want, like I said, I want advisors to feel that they're doing what they enjoy to do because as we all know, when people enjoy their job, they tend to work harder. And guess who it benefits? It benefits our students. If you're if you're happy with what you're doing, the students will notice it, and that connection will be there. So that was a long-winded in terms of what my role is, but I, I, it's 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 multiple in terms of the professional development for advisors as well. And I've said this to a lot of you: I will be more than happy to work for you uh, when you pass me up in the position then pass and I say pass me up not because I don't feel confident in myself but I'm happy where I'm at I, I've said this before I, I saw my previous boss retire in this position and I'll be more than happy to retire in this position as well but I, I am also confident in the advisor that will tell me Ed I think it's time for you to retire early because you're not doing anything in, or you're not contributing much anymore if I ever get to that point that's for that's when it's time for me to retire well, and it's good that you feel fulfilled in, in this role and you see yourself in, in that role. Um, I appreciate you saying I'm a good public speaker. I don't think I am. I like presenting, but not necessarily that I'm a good public speaker, uh, but I appreciate it either way. Now, you mentioned Ray and uh, Ray Navarro, the previous the previous director, and let's talk about him. So he was the predecessor as director in advising academic services. Ray was someone who gave us our starts in academic advising. I know he was the first person that ever talked about Nakata and joining that organization. You mentioned um, seeing a lot of the previous like kind of work that was there in Nakata. And so in Ray's office um, that when you were cleaning out some of it, uh, when he had retired, there was like these VHS tapes. There was like these older pieces of paper that were turning yellow that had that were typed on typewriters. Uh, if anyone listening knows what those typewriters are, but they had all academic advising type things from Nakata. But can you talk more about Ray Navarro and his influence um, on you? You forgot to mention all those uh, legal, very wide papers that were green and white. Oh, yeah, those too. <laughs> those were the old uh, queries that we can now run on our computers and mm-hmm. all those forms that we used to use to see who our students were and their GPA. We had a we had requested from our IT department, they would give us those big 
legal form with the white and green rows on it, right? How far we have come in, in, <laughs> in higher ed and technology. No, but uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, Ray Navarro, our previous director, gave us an opportunity uh, to become who we become in terms of advisors, in terms of connecting. Uh, he was a big believer in what I've, I've, I believe in as well. Uh, the job can be taught, but the personality, uh, the connection that we can have with students, that, that's, the, that's what we need to choose in terms of who we're selecting. Not only was it Ray, um, when I first started here, we had a good seasoned advising group. It was Ray Navarro as our director, uh, a lady named Diana Pelletier, who I became good friends with as well, and then another lady named Eloise Warnell, all ad wonderful advisors in terms of teaching me how to do things, learning from them. Um, Ray Navarro always had this, and he said this a lot, family comes first, family first. Um, and that's one of the things I try to do as well when, when folks need the time to, to spend with their family. I've never been one to deny a vacation or, or anything like that because family does come first and, and that way we're happy at work as well. So that's one thing that I got from him directly. But the other part is he was always looking at what else he can do. So Nakata was one of them in those early times of what can we do ahead of time, be more proactive than reactive, right? Towards the end, right before he retired until the last few years before he retired, he retired at a good age. He was a still a young man, um, but he had worked in higher ed for quite some time. And here in California, we have a great pension. Uh, so he was able to retire at a good, at a good age. But he didn't just leave and he left his mark by some scholarships that he started. So one of the things he did was in all those years of working with students on probation, there was one thing that was a common factor to him and it was financial. Students are struggling with school because maybe they're working two jobs or the financial aid wasn't enough to pay for school or, or their um, books and, and so forth. So he started a resiliency scholarship fund for students on academic probation. As if you know, scholarships, uh, there's not many scholarships for students on probation. There's, there's a lot of scholarships out there for students that are doing well academically uh, in, in terms of the public scholarships. So he started a scholarship for students who are struggling academically. And if they improve their GPA, they can apply for this scholarship and, and it can help them financially. Not only that, but it's a, it's a nice pat on the bat when you get a, a nice check that helps you and you get a scholarship. Maybe for some of these students, their first scholarship that they applied to and, and received. But in order to raise that money, he started selling a lot of his own memorabilia. Since a young kid, he collected a lot of sports memorabilia, memorabilia, and he started selling it. Uh, I, it, it do people still use eBay, Matt? <laughs> I think they do. Yeah. <laughs> so eBay, he was selling a lot of things on eBay. He had his eBay account, and he would sell a lot, and he, and he raised money, and that's how we would give scholarships to students. Dana Pelletier, the other advisor I mentioned, uh, she was working on our campus. She was one of the first graduates in 1965 from our university, and she worked all the way till she could. She probably will still be working here, unfortunately, uh, due to some health issues. She passed away in, in 2012, and Ray renamed the Resiliency Scholarship to the Diana Pelletier Resiliency Scholarship. Um, and when Diana passed, 
because they were both giving to students. Dana wrote that her car, all, the, all her belongings, she would donate to this scholarship. So we were able to raise a good amount of money and Ray and I moved things into storage and then little by little, Ray was selling a lot of this stuff. So that's one of the wonderful legacies that he left behind in terms of Diana Pelletier. And we still have that scholarship and every semester we still award that scholarship to students who are struggling academically. When he retired, it wasn't enough that he made a difference in our students and he created a scholarship. He and his wife created a second scholarship for undocumented students. He wanted to help undocumented students who had earned their bachelor's be able to attend a graduate program at our university. So he donated from his own pocket, his own money, him and his wife uh, created that scholarship. And that's something we're supporting now and selecting students to go to grad school. And that's the Soñador Dreamer uh, Scholarship by Ray Navarro and his wife, Jeannie. So another thing, not only did he make a difference while I was here, but post-retirement, he also made a difference. And I always saw him from a distance before I worked in the office. I was fortunate enough to, to, um, to work with them for so many years and uh, very impactful in my life. Um, unfortunately, Ray also passed away this last year because of COVID. Uh, and I still, we still stay in contact with his wife, Jeannie, and they're still, and Jeannie's still very supportive of the scholarship. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the Ray I knew. And, and, and the other thing, he didn't seem to stress, Matt, you and I talk about this a lot. These positions, these jobs can sometimes stress us out and they're not supposed to, we're supposed to be enjoying these jobs. And one of the things I learned from him. He got his job done and at five o'clock, he felt good to go home on time and not feel like he needed to stay longer. And that's what I try to do too. And obviously that's a commitment I made to myself, to my wife that I'm not taking work home and I need to make sure that work-life balance stays good for my health, for you know the health of the office too, make sure things are getting done. But I learned that from him. You know, not take life so serious, not take work so serious and, and just... We can do our best, and as long as we keep wanting to do our best and keep working on improving, like we've talk, been talking about. Yeah, he definitely had a way about himself, very chill, and someone that definitely, everything he did was always, how does this not benefit me, but how does this benefit the students? How is this going to impact someone in a positive way? So someone that he probably would never have called himself humble, but was very humble, and someone that was hardworking. And I always heard stories of like when he first started, very much like kind of this student activist. And I mean, he created the the university studies class uh, that, that we have in our office. So very much someone that was a pioneer and someone that really made an, an impact on many, many people. The other thing, and I forgot to mention this, and and he was, I don't, I don't even know if ahead of his time, but about 10 years ago, nine years ago, I, I talked about how we started getting more advisors, not only in the different colleges, but in athletics, international, even some of our student affairs colleagues like Veteran Affairs, um, Undocumented Center. He started University Academic Advising Council, what we call in short UAC. So on our campus, we have a council. It wasn't it was homegrown. It wasn't a charge from president or cabinet to create this council to make decisions. It was 
How do we communicate with each other? How do we make sure all the information from our registrar's office about our credit summaries and about graduation and our catalog is being disseminated to all advisors? Because Ray was the director of the one office, but then not of the other advisors. So he said, how about we always meet on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis, on a semester basis? And as you see, and you've seen this more in Nakata, more and more universities, if not all, probably have some kind of council now. And within that council, now a professional development has grown out of that, right? So that was something that Ray thought of years as we were hiring. He goes, we should create a council to make sure everyone's on the same page. So that was wonderful for him too. Yeah, again, thinking of what's going to benefit the students. Hey, bring us all together so we can actually communicate. And so, yeah, a lot of thanks to Ray and a lot of things that he started here at this university. But we've reached time. I know there was other things that we were planning to discuss, and maybe there'll be a part two for this. But if anyone has any questions, uh, maybe it's about scholarships or about academic probation or about being a director or how to become an academic advisor, um, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? My email. Um our, our phone, I, I don't know if this is a the good thing or not, but usually my extension isn't what's on the website just because I want to make sure someone answers. If I'm meeting with the student, I'm trying to focus on the student. And I don't want to lead someone to straight to a voicemail. So our front counter, our wonderful staff there, whether it be Randy or Janet or someone, has always been able to answer the phone and direct people or put people on my calendar if we need to make a meeting or appointment. But my email, I'm always constantly checking that email. And my email is my first initial E and my last name Mendoza. So I'm sure Matt will put it somewhere. E-Mendoza at csusb.edu is my email. E-Mendoza at csusb.edu. All right. Awesome. And I appreciate you every day and you being the boss and having us you know, work as hard as we do and also just appreciate being academic advisors here at this university and in this office. So I know once we end here, we got more students to see. It's a peak registration time. So Ed, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, and I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks, Ed. Always great chatting with you about advising. And I feel I've learned more about you, even though we've known each other for years. So thanks again, Ed. Now let's hear from Dane Zanowski from Temple University about the latest on Dane's desk. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Dane coming to you from Dane's Desk, the YouTube series on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. I'm here to talk about a couple of great videos we have for you. Uh, the one that most recently posted is from a colleague at Drexel University, Tom Heinemann, who talks about being a new advisor who was hired during the pandemic. So definitely check that one out about his experience and, and feedback. And then coming up, our next video will be from a good old friend and colleague, Joe Sanagroach, uh, who comes from us in the career development side of things. And Joe will talk about the importance of the integration of academic advising and career advising. So definitely check that one out as well. Again, you can find all these videos on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. And feel free to connect with me through LinkedIn or Facebook if you have ideas of future topics or if you want to be a guest on Dane's Desk. And as always, keep advising.
Thanks, Dane. Lastly, we have a past guest on, but on this episode as an interviewer, and that is Leslie Ross. Leslie is back to interview one of her mentors from Georgia Tech, Dr. Beth Spencer. Here we go. Up next, I'm going to be interviewing Beth Bullock Spencer. I'm Leslie Ross from the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech, and I will have the opportunity to have an in-depth conversation with Dr. Beth Spencer. Beth Bullock Spencer earned her bachelor's degree in history from the University of Georgia. She then journeyed to Lancaster University in the northwest of England for her MA in modern social history. Many years later, she returned to the University of Georgia for a master's in education in adult education. As a lifelong learner, Beth has spent many years as a part-time graduate student at Georgia State University, finally finishing her PhD in history in 2016. Her entire career has been in higher education. She has spent more than 15 years at Georgia Tech, where she is currently the Director of Undergraduate Advising and Transition. This unit, part of the Office of Undergraduate Education, involves the first year and transfer seminars, academic recovery courses, academic coaching and success programs, exploratory advising, and coordinates the technology initiatives and support for the campus undergraduate advising community. Beth has been an active member in Nakata for many years and finds the articles and publications, webinars, and pre-conference workshops to be especially invaluable in her work. In addition to her primary role as an advising administrator, she tries to teach regularly and enjoys working with new transfer students, those on academic probation, and teaching a history course when she gets a chance. In her free time, Beth enjoys gardening, reading, yoga, genealogy, and has recently gotten back to drawing and painting. She is also a crazy bird lady and adores her two dogs, Bailey and Jake. Welcome, Beth Spencer. We're so excited to have a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This is a really fun thing to do right at the end of a long semester. Well, I really appreciate you setting some time aside to come and talk to us a little bit about your journey into the academic advising world. And so I'm going to start with the first question we always ask. Tell us a little bit about your path into academic advising and to advising administration. So it, it's been a long journey. Um, I've been working in higher ed since the early 90s. I can't believe it's been that long. It seems like just yesterday. Um, I So you, you mentioned that you know, I have three degrees in history, and sometimes people think that's kind of unusual um, for somebody who isn't a professional historian, um, and I think so. But that my goal when I was an undergraduate, and then for many years when I didn't really seem to have a goal, was sort of that I was going to get a PhD in history and I was going to become a history professor. I'm a professor's kid. I love to learn. I love to read and write, et cetera. It just seemed like a comfortable place. Um, so after I finished, so I went straight from my bachelor's degree over to England. I got that master's degree. And then I went straight to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I was in a doctoral program in history. And I was a TA for a couple of years. And I really, I, I learned that I really love teaching, which in some ways kind of surprised me because I'm such an introvert, but I really did like it a lot. 
Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, I was sort of thinking about, OK, so am I going to try to get more funding as a TA or should I do something else? And I was beginning to maybe wonder, am I really supposed to be a historian? I don't really know. You know, we, you know about those grad school crises. Um, and some of my mentors who were older graduate students in the department who had done many things said, hey, we, we think of it. We think there's an assistantship that you would you should really pursue. And it's actually to be an academic advisor over in what was then the um, General Curriculum Center. And I, I mean, I'd worked with my faculty advisor as an undergraduate, but I had never really thought about can anyone other than a faculty member be an advisor. So I pursued the uh, opportunity and the, the dean hired me. And I spent the next three years working 20 to 25 hours a week as an academic advisor. And um, our, the role there, and, and I think Illinois still does something fairly similar, though the names have changed, obviously, over the years. I still go back and look at the Illinois resources sometimes. I think they, I think I got great training there. They do great things. Um, but I was an advisor always for about 300 uh, first and second year students, including transfers, who had come into the University of Illinois without a major. Some of them knew exactly what they wanted to do. They'd kind of figured that out from the time they applied to the time they got there. Others were really undecided. Um, and some, of course, would change their mind. They're like, I'm going to go into the College of Business. And they couldn't go until they hit 60 hours at that point. So I was their advisor until 60 hours. And they had to, you know, or they're going into the College of Engineering. And then they take that first accounting class. Or they realize that physics is not what they thought it was. And so a lot of people were going through a process of really exploring and changing their mind. At that time, at the University of Illinois, students had to be in a major by 60 hours. And it had to be something they could finish by the time they got to the end of nine you know, nine semesters there, there, they were really like for the flagship school, you're not going to stay here forever. Advisors had a lot of accountability, therefore. And so we were really trained to do what we didn't call it that, but really good exploratory advisors, you know, building a lot of career advising into our practice, um, really helping students go through reflective processes to not only just take classes, but like, who are you? What are you going to do? Is the thing you're thinking about making sense? Are you happy? Are you good at this? How can you get better, etc.? And I just love the work. Um, and by the time I finished that, I left Illinois for personal reasons. And I, I was ABD and I never finished that, that dissertation. Um, I was realizing that I probably wouldn't be a professional historian, um, but that I did want to do something and, and definitely wanted to work in higher ed and probably want to do something with students, probably in the field of advising. And it took me a little while to get back to it. I did some other things along the way. Um, but throughout my career, I've often come back to advising or been in positions that combine advising skills with something else. And I think that's really what led me into advising administration. I'd also say that, um, I, you know, I already had a master's degree. I didn't need another one. But um, when I was working in undergraduate admission, something you and I share um, at the University of Georgia a few years later, I decided to go back to grad school because the USG or the University of Central Georgia has a wonderful program that helps uh, pay for graduate school or other educational opportunities. And I did I did the master's degree in adult education as a part time student. I thought I needed to do something what I thought of as practical. And so I wanted the way and I used I still use the things I did in that program every day from, you know, the courses on like learning theory. Why are what, what, why are people motivated? Why do they drop in or out? Those kinds of classes to program evaluation and planning to assessment, research methods, a really great administration course, et cetera. And I feel like that also helped, you know, 
inform my practice and and I think it definitely it definitely opened some some um, doors along along the way but I really I would I, I did admissions I did I was a program coordinator for a grad a graduate medical program at Emory for a while which kind of used some advising skills but also gave me a lot of experience with program accreditation and event planning and then I was a, a real academic advisor at Georgia State for a couple of years and then I moved back into other things. And I was a graduate advisor when I first came to, to Georgia Tech, which really we call it advising. And as you know, Leslie, though, at the graduate level, that's really more of an administrator's job. And that was really great experience. And I think all these things combined helped me eventually come this route. But it was also leaving advising um, in terms of like really thinking about academic advising and moving over to academic success. That actually gave me the first opportunity to supervise people. And then being responsible for programs. And I think that and moving into um, academic success, where I was the director of a center for academic success at another institution for a couple of years before coming back to tech into my current role was was really, really key too. So I think sometimes if you want to move into advising administration, you don't you may have to think about something other than this sort of straight line as an advisor and think about ways you can move into other roles to get other experiences and maybe come back to it. Thank you. Um, for those who might not be familiar with Georgia Tech as an institution, how would you describe it? Well, we are very much a STEM institution. Um, I was reading one of our big annual reports the other day and was reminded that about 80% of our undergraduates are in STEM majors. Um, and I think that, that definitely makes Georgia Tech a little bit different than many other institutions that have, of course, STEM or even have strong engineering and computer computing programs. But we really focus so much on the STEM programs. Um, and so when you're working with students in advising or academic coaching and career exploration, et cetera, these, these very connected areas, you're often informed by the fact that you're working with, with students who are in STEM. And they, I think students in STEM sometimes think about um, their career paths and even the way they learn maybe differently than those say in the liberal arts that, you know, you and I are liberal arts people. And so we, we kind of get that. And it, it's definitely helped me grow a lot. I think Georgia Tech is also a place where our students are competitive. They're very engaged. Um, we're very lucky that, you know, we, we don't struggle with retention. Students want to be here. They want to figure out how to make it work. Um, we're a place, I think Georgia Tech is also a place in terms of people who work here where we're very collaborative. Um, it's a place with wonderful, uh, we, we, we attract a lot of really wonderful uh, staff and faculty. And one of the good things about working here is, you know, connecting with so many people outside of, you know, your immediate office um, and working with them. And I think that, you know, we, we are very lucky that we get to work with just, just truly amazing students who really are, want to go out there and change the world, et cetera. But it's also a high, 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 um, it's a kind of a high stress place, right? I know that's true everywhere right now. We're going through stressful times, but because it is, our students are very intense and very motivated. They often sometimes get very stressed out. So we, we work with a lot of stressed out students too. Amazing, but stressed out students. So tell me a little bit about your current role and how that plays out in your average day. Like, what do you do and what do you do every day? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know that I really have an average day. My job has changed a lot in the five years that I've been back at Georgia Tech working with undergraduate advising. 
Um, we've definitely grown a lot. When I first came, we didn't have an exploratory advisor on campus. Now we have one. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to have two soon. Um, I definitely didn't work with GT with our first year seminar, transfer seminar. That wasn't part of advising. And now we, we've kind of we've, we've put them together. Um, coaching was when I first came back to tech, that was part of our Center for Academic Success, along with peer tutoring and supplemental instruction. And now coaching is over with us in advising. So my, my job has grown a lot. And that means it hasn't means I've spent a lot of time doing HR stuff, um, you know, um, writing new job descriptions, building an office, etc. Um, but I think my job is interesting in that my my supervisor often says that it has two really distinct parts. There's what he calls the internal part, which is being the director for a unit, which includes all those areas coaching, success programs, exploratory advising, our seminars, et cetera. And we have a team when we're fully staffed of about 10. Um, and 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 um, although we have definite overlap and cohesiveness, we also do some very different things. And then there's what he calls the external facing part, and that's working with the undergraduate advising community. And um, as you know, we are super, 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 I can't say that enough times, decentralized. All of our undergraduate advisors uh, work in their own academic departments. And um, some are very insular, I would say. You know, they really think of themselves like, you know, we're an independent unit. We can, we make our own policies. We do our own things. Others are less so. Um, but um, working with a lot of a big part of that job is working with communications, um, trying to connect the dots, uh, supporting advisors who have individual questions or needs or supporting units, um, working with our Georgia Tech Academic Advising Network. I've been on the executive board for that. Um, it's a volunteer organization that really works to build community and professional development in the advising and um, the very broad undergraduate advising group, which includes you know, people from the registrar and admissions and international edits, athletics, et cetera. But I'm very involved in that. Um, a big part of my job for the last couple of years has been working with our plans for um, bringing on a new platform for our advising technology, um, which has been more complicated and I think a longer process than any of us anticipated. Um, there's been a lot of exciting things about that, but it, that's definitely been a huge part of my job. Like, for example, in the summer of 2020, I might have been spending 20 hours a week just working on meetings with that. Um, like I said, I like to try to teach and stay fresh working with students. I don't work. Otherwise, I don't I don't have an I own caseload, et cetera. So I think that's a good thing to do. And um, I would say most days there's just a little bit of everything. Um, and then, of course, there's the assessment and the reports and all of the stuff you do as a director, you know, in, in a unit in, in, in under undergraduate education. And tons of email, like everybody. Tons of email. Can never get too much email. Never get too much email. So what does a typical, if there was a such thing as a typical fall semester, what does a typical fall semester look like in your unit or at Georgia Tech? So in, in my unit, um, there's good energy as we start fall semester because um, we're lucky we're housed in our um, Clough Undergraduate Learning Commons, which is a, you know, a main hub 
course, places is a place for students to hang out and also where all of our students have their, say, first and second year um, science labs. So everybody's in the building. We're attached to the library. Um, and you can tell as fall's coming because the building starts getting louder and it starts filling up after being quiet in the summer or having lots of like K-12 kids in here in the summer. This, the sounds kind of change. I um, mean, it's a good place to be. Like, it's funny. I commented this morning as I came in, you know, we have classes for just today and tomorrow this week for Thanksgiving. And I can I, I, I could tell that it's that time of the semester because there are not many students here, but the ones that are here are face down and asleep on tables. You know, <laughs> they're OK. That's just what they do as we get to this point in the semester. You don't see that like in August or September. Um, for for me now that now that now that our first now that our first year seminar and our transfer seminars are part of our unit, a big part of the fall is um, just being part of getting those all of those sections and as many as seventy sections, you know, up and running. Um, our director and our coordinator, our, our pro program manager who works with our TLs does most of the work, but of course I'm part of it. Some semesters I teach that too. I love it just like you do. Um, then with advising, you know, it's trying to support advisors as we get through phase two, what some campuses would call drop ad. It was really intense this fall, as you know, and we're a campus that's been growing. And, um, you know, we felt like we had some extra challenges with registration, um, especially this summer and fall. It, it all worked out. But I was very, very busy with with phase two registration. With, and I normally am not because we don't have a line out our door for that, for example. Our exploratory advising program has really grown in the last two years. So uh, supporting that and helping to make the campus more aware of this amazing service. Um, you know, I think probably our listeners probably don't know that at Georgia Tech, all of our students choose a major when they apply for admission. And we don't have a way to ever be undecided to kind of step out and, and do that. Um, and we for so many years, we've just, I think, worked on this idea that well, if the students are making good grades and most of our students are academically successful, then they must be in the right major. And, and so we've really tried to um, go along with the University System of Georgia's um, mandate and initiatives to really help ensure that all of our students have made an intentional choice of their path. And maybe not just the path that someone told them they should do because they're good at math or because they, they've heard of mechanical engineering, but maybe they'd like to do something else. So we've been really busy with working on programming and getting that those services really out there and connecting with advisors, getting our success programs up for any, try to do a lot of outreach for any students who are on warning or probation or off track. That's a big part of the beginning of the semester. We do teach classes to help those students. And then the first big advising initiative that I work with um, specifically in the fall semester is when our midterm progress reports go out. And we try to remind advisors about you know, we're, we're going to meet with those students. Our first year students have two or more years. We'd like to support those who'd like to work like you who work with students, any student who seems to be struggling academically, not just a first year student. And try to, uh, you know, remind people of best practices and how to connect and help students turn things around. It's not just a box checking meeting, but a good, productive, collaborative conversation. And, and those are the main things we, we do. And then, of course, as we get towards the end of the semester, looking at some assessment, especially with our coaching program, which is run out of this office and really complements advising on our campus. Sounds like a busy, busy semester. I think everybody on our campus is, has, is busy in the fall, don't you? Yeah, I think everybody on our campus is <laughs> super busy in the fall. Fall is the busiest semester. It really is, although our summers have changed so much. The last yes. couple of years, as we've really grown, 
as we've gone from having like 100 first year students starting the summer to closer to 800. And so that's really changed our office, too, because now we do so much advising and so much programming and and, and we offer so many first year seminars from the summer. So that's that's really been a big game changer for us, too. So tell me a little bit about your involvement in Nakata. Like, what do you enjoy being a member of Nakata? And then like, what are what are your your involvement? Sure. So if you're familiar with the Clifton Strengths, um, which is a big thing on our campus, partially because of our first year seminar where we have all of our students take it. Um, my top two strengths are a learner and context. I think the context makes a lot of sense for an historian, but the learner, I think, is, is uh, really informs the way I, in some ways, approach, well, not only my job, but also approach my involvement with Nakata. I always want to go out and read and find out, like, well, what, what do the experts say about a topic? What are other people doing? What's actually working for other schools or at other places that are like tech or not like tech? Where's the data? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite a reader. And as I've gotten older, and gotten drier eyes, et cetera. I print more and more stuff and read less and less online. And I have folders at home that my husband laughs about, like forever, the things I've printed from the Nakata site, you know, articles on, okay, well, if we're gonna, if we're gonna hire an exploratory advisor, let's go do all the research on what what is what are people in Nakata doing with first year advising with undecided students, et cetera. So I really use my membership to read that journal and read, read, read all the things that are available to us online. And I could spend forever going through each link. You know, I like research. I just keep going. I've enjoyed um, participating in some of the, um, you know, the free webinars that Wendy Troxell's group has done about research in advising. We're not actually doing it right now, but I think we should. And, um, you know, so it's like trying to get fired up to, to, to think about, well, we, you know, we've got amazing advisors on our campus. We could probably start doing some of that. Um, I go to the national conference every year. Um, this year I did attend um, virtually instead of in person and I'm, I'm, it, it was good, but I wish, I wish I'd actually gone in person. Um, I'm thinking this might be the year to do the assessment Institute. I'm not entirely Sure. I want to go when we're really when our campus as a whole is ready to start thinking about how are we not just individual offices, but how are we as a campus really going to start assessing our advising? Um, but may, maybe this is the year. Maybe I can take some other advising leaders on campus with me so we could really get serious about that. That that would be exciting. And I think that would that would be a, a huge game changer for us. Right. It would be just an amazing thing to do. Um, I like the webinars. As you know, I use my registration to register for them when we were more in person. We what we have we we project them in over here and we have people come and we invite people to stay and have a conversation. We sh we share the link with our own campus as we can afterwards. I know a lot of people are looking forward to the December uh, webinar, which we are registered for. And then I've really tried to do at least one or two Nakata things. I don't always do it, but I try to do at least one or two kind of other Nakata things each month. So like I did I attended that it was a fairly recent um, webinar on ex Existential, existentialist advising. I was like, well, I don't know much about that, but that sounds interesting. And then I went down the hall and wanted to talk to our exploratory advisor because like, this makes me think about all that work you do with self-authorship. What do you think? We had some great conversations and I sent the article out to several people. And I think that's really good. Um, I've enjoyed some of the, the series this year too um, that are really coming out about diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging and how advising is, you know, we, we can really help make this happen on our campuses. Those have been good webinars too. So I 
you know, I feel like I use the Nakata membership a lot. And, you know, we pay for memberships for about 40 or so of our advisors on campus. And I often encourage some people don't actually they haven't filled out the the, uh, the, the form enough so that their, their, their journals come to me instead of to them. Like you need you need this journal. You need to be reading this stuff. You don't just want to have a membership just to say you've got a membership. You should really use it. When we hire new advisors or when I talk to someone who's maybe thinking about moving into advising, I always say, go to Nakata. This is where you start reading. What is advising? What is good advising? What kind of advisor would you want to be? How is this connected to other things you've done? You know, it's, it's just such a such an amazing resource. And then, of course, when I go to in-person things, I love to meet people and do the networking. I do think that the uh, pre-conference workshops are amazing where you can just really go deep on a topic. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you're so supportive of uh, offering the Kata memberships to all the academic advisors who will use them. Mm-hmm. I, I have tr- really enjoyed the webinar conversations that we've had an opportunity to do and just to get an opportunity to get out of your office, talk to other academic advisors and, mm-hmm. you know, share best practices or talk about what's working in your office or what's not working in your office. It's yeah, so and it's helpful. such a compliment to what we're trying to do through our GTAN anyway, which I think I really love the fact that over the past couple of years, GTAN's kind of gotten away from just having someone come and talk about our program on campus, but also we're getting back to more more often featuring the great stuff that we're doing on our campus and really talking about this is what's working in our unit. Um, we can share this resource with you. And I know that a lot of that is happening. I, like, I know that um, computer science advising has brought some of the great stuff from mechanical engineering and people have been inspired by what they're doing over in Scheller, et cetera. So, you know, I think we t- do some of that like on our own campus. And then when you get involved with this stuff from Nakata, it, it just helps you remember that there's a whole world out there in this profession that you can learn from, adapt and adopt, contribute to. You mentioned GTAN. For those of uh, our listeners who don't know what that is and what that entails, can you go into a little bit more detail? Sure. So it's the Georgia Tech Academic Advisors Network. Uh, You've been an officer in it how many times? (laughs) Um, And it goes back, I think, more than 20 years. I, I don't really know. I know it predates my time at Tech by many, many years. And it's it's an organization that has definitely changed a lot over the years, which is it's, it's, as it should, right? I mean, advisors' work constantly changes. Our students' needs and expectations change. So our organization on our campus has changed. Um, it is a voluntary organization. There are no fees or dues. No one's required to participate. Um, not all of our advisors participate. I think those who do um, really benefit from it. It is a way to get out of your office and connect with people, um, including people who are, again, I often talk about the advising community. So we've got people who are truly academic advisors, so like their title, their main job, and then other people who are part of it. So, you know, some people from admissions, we really need to work closely with our colleagues over in international education. We're trying to build closer relations between what the academic advisors and those who are doing all of the um, student academic support and athletics, et cetera, our academic coaches, our peer learning, et cetera. So it's, it's a really good organic group with a lot of different people um, who may be involved all the time or maybe stop by for the topic. Um, you know, we typically meet for an hour, I guess, nine times a year. We don't meet in the summer with all of the orientation going on in people's vacations. Um, we, I love the fact that 
different years, there's also different supplemental things that go along with the standard meetings. So Leslie, you know, you started you, I think you and our current president for another few couple of weeks did that advising on the rock series that got people to come out after work or even at lunchtime or just for morning coffee to talk about a topic, to watch a show and build on that. Like how is this related to advising kind of almost kind of like an informal type of journal club. You've done that. And then since, and then in the last year, I think that's sort of morphed into the, what they call GTAN connections where we have, it's a really informal way to just bring people together to just talk about a topic that's related to advising in a very like low stress informal way. So, for example, um, you know, one of your colleagues and Ivan Alice talked about the fact that she does podcasts and some people are like, I do a podcast. I didn't know that, you know, or, um, you know, what's working for somebody else in the way they're using technology or how a group has started using optional texting in their unit. And, oh, how would I make that happen, et cetera. So I think those have been fun. Um, I always enjoy those. And the time just flies by. Different people participate and different people kind of loop out for that. Um, and then of course we, for many, many years had the biannual best practices conference, which was always a Georgia tech for many years, a Georgia tech only thing. And then over time it grew. So we started inviting other colleagues around the state. And then we've even invited people as we've become a, we're, we are a region four, uh, we are a NACAD affiliate. So sometimes I think we, we advertise through region four, um, and with the last, with this past year, we did a virtual conference. We were really able to include people who wouldn't be able to drive up for the day or who are scared of Atlanta traffic, et cetera. But the best practices conference is something I think GTAN can be super, super proud of. It's a good conference. Um, it's about half Georgia Tech showcasing what we do and about half what primarily um, our colleagues at Sister University System of Georgia institutions are doing, but also other schools. It's not just the University System of Georgia. Um, the networking, I think, is really good. And, um, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's also really great professional development for people who decide to get involved and work on the communications or do the um, proposal reviews, um, do the event planning, et cetera. Some of that stuff that you, maybe you don't get the experience to do it in your regular day to day job, but you can do it this way and you can do something that you can really see and like, wow, that was successful. We always get great feedback. Um, it's something that's changed a lot. So that's something we do. And now we're doing it every year. We decided that taking a break was just confusing people or kind of slowing down our momentum. So um, that's something that's another thing that G10 does and does, I think, really, really well. Well, it's so awesome to have you as the director of academic advising at Georgia Tech to be so supportive of academic advisors. Um, so I have a question for you mm -hmm. is what advice would you give to advisors who are looking to move into a leadership role? I think, so it depends on your campus, right? I mean, different campuses will offer people different opportunities. Um, through the years, I've worked at six, a total of six institutions. I've spent the bulk of my time, about half, I guess about half of my career at Georgia Tech. And if you add up all the others, it'd be about another half. And they're, they're all different. You know, they, most of them have been big, but they're, they're all different. Um, and so your opportunities may vary, but I think one of the things that some of advisors, I think, have to really be intentional about is how to sort of get out of their comfort zone and maybe get out of their office and talk to other people. Because especially since we are so decentralized at tech, 
I mean, like someone like you, Leslie, the one advisor, plus somebody who wears many, many other hats for a school, you could like probably like never talk to somebody outside of public policy almost other than like you have to talk to the registrar, you got to talk to admission, that kind of thing. But, you know, you could just be like, I'm so busy taking care of my students and my school's needs that I, I don't like, is there Georgia Tech out there? I don't even really know. But um, when I first came to Tech, I had a role where I was, you know, embedded in, in in one of the engineering departments. It was a great place to work. But I started thinking like, well, I would really like to meet people who do something else here too. So I just started like reading the Daily Digest and I, I volunteered. I got on a couple of committees and then, you know, by meeting or, you know, by meeting people on those committees and I maybe volunteered on other committees or people like, oh, well, maybe she'll do this or that. And I felt like that was a really good way to just start meeting more people on campus and building, um, kind of building up my reputation, if that makes any sense. I think if you want to move into a new role, and especially if you kind of feel that that's a quote moving up, might be over, which is sometimes just as helpful. You know, the more people who know who you are and have a have a, a good impression of you um, as a volunteer or even doing something maybe that isn't directly related to your job, the easier it's, it's going to be. That has definitely paid off for me many times through the years. Um, depending on your background and what you've done, you know, it might make sense to think, and, and if it's feasible and something you want to do, you, you might go back to school. I mean, there's some really great master's programs. I, I don't know anyone. I know some people who have, you know, at least started the, the advising programs through, through Nakata, for example, like the formal graduate ones and also the, the less formal kind of continuing ed things. You, you could maybe do that if, if you can afford it and do it. I guess, as I mentioned in the intro, for me going back and doing that um, education degree was really, really helpful. Um, it really helped. It really taught me a lot about things like assessment, working with stakeholders, program evaluation, leadership, administration that I wouldn't have, that, that my acad my other degrees had never exposed me to. And I wasn't I was kind of doing it in my job, but but the degree helped me do it better, which again gets you more recognition, if that makes sense. And then I do think if you want to move into leadership, like some, I think it can be hard in advising because you might think like I'm in a I'm in an advising center and there's just one director. That director is not going anywhere anytime soon. What do I do? I'm just stuck. You know, um, it might be that you need to even if you don't want to leave your institution, think about other jobs on your campus that you could move into by building on transferable skills you've had as an advisor. And then you get new skills and maybe later then you move into a, a different type of leadership position or maybe you actually go into advising leadership. I think now is a time where there's a lot of really exciting opportunities out there. And if you look at the job boards, you're going to see so many jobs related to student success. And there's a lot of ways to approach student success. Some of them are more like student life type approaches. Others are very much based on advising. But I don't think I think in all of the student success types of jobs I see, whether they're to be an assistant director of student success or like all the way to a VP. Advising is often kind of one of the things they're talking about because you can't, really can't tackle student success on a campus without including advising in some kind of way. Right. Retention is such an important thing on campuses, too. And there's actually a lot of jobs are coming up now where they want people to really work on retention. And some people think, well, that's all the data analysis and maybe that's not what I do. Well, we can all get better at that. Right. But what I think a lot of this, what a lot of retention is really about is not necessarily just looking at lots of statistics and you don't have to be somebody who can spend all the time in spreadsheets, but really thinking about 
um, how you can use your campus data to inform your decisions or practices, not drive them. Those are different things. Again, advising is a big part of that because if good advisors, they know students and they know what they know what the barriers are. They know what students want. They understand curriculum. They understand. They actually advisors know a lot about it, analytics, even if they don't think about it that way. So, you know, if you kind of like start thinking about retention issues on your campus. And if they're not something that are maybe you're embedded in advising on your campus, how could you maybe get on a committee or get involved? Because it that actually takes a whole campus, but advising is a really important piece. And then also this big, big push. You know, our, our students have changed so much from when, when I was an undergrad in a liberal arts major at a big university, which had a great career center. I never had a plan for what I was going to do. I didn't think about what I wanted to do in terms of a job when I was picking majors, which is, you know, I... I was an art major for a while, I was a Russian major for a while, I was a history major. I did all these things. They all, you know, but now our students are so focused on career. Our parents are so focused on career. Um, you know, Nakata keeps pointing out, you know, our advisors need to be able to at least, you know, integrate career advising into their practice. But there's also a lot of jobs that are really bringing career like career center, what we might think of as career center and advising as separate things, they're bringing them together. In some places, exploratory advising is part of a career center. Um, so again, I think people who have a background in advising might also look to maybe moving into working more with a career center um, as a way maybe to either move over and gain some new experiences and move into leadership or actually just to move up. Because I mean, I don't think in, in, in all of these jobs, nobody's like in college or their little kid, I want to grow up and work on retention or, you know, this sort of thing. but these are all things that are advising background. It's such an important part of. And so that's one of the things I would encourage people to do. Sometimes think about maybe moving over or looking a little bit outside of advising, growing, and maybe then you come back and, and you truly move into maybe something that's quote, just advising. But I think just advising is becoming maybe a little bit outdated. I think we're just so much more connected. Um, and integrated in our approaches to supporting our students in today's world. That is so helpful. Uh, I, I love how you said that, you know, you can move over or move up and to really think outside of what might be typical advising or a typical advising office. And it's so yeah. true. There is only one director of, of advising at, at each institution, but Often, there's yeah. so many different avenues that a, a person could use their advising background at an yeah. institution and, and still progress in their careers. Yeah, I think what what, what, we build, what advisors often struggle with is when, how do you finally get that supervisory experience that somebody wants for you to maybe make a big jump? And you may feel like I'm kind of stuck. I mean, like I we're all advisors and only one person supervises. I don't really know how to move. I think more and more campus are, campuses are developing, you know, tiers, maybe an advisor one, two or three. And that may then start building in supervising. Um, we we don't really have anything that clear cut and that uniform on our campus. But for me, the big break came when I um, became, I went from being the pre-teaching advisor, which was a one person off job, but, but it was very multifaceted. I worked with, I had, I worked on MOUs with other campuses. I worked with faculty. I worked with NSF grants, lots of different kinds of stuff there that other than quote, just advising and quote. Um, and then I, I applied for a job in our Center for Academic Success and became the senior assistant director. I was really hired to build up our academic coaching program, but then, which was exciting. And I had, it had a learning curve, you know, it was definitely related to advising and stuff I had done, but also a lot of new things to learn. 
Um, and now I can't separate advising from coaching. I, I really can't. But um, the thing that really worked out so well there is then our director got a promotion and all of a sudden then I had to step in and as an interim supervise our peer learning programs. And boy, was that a learning curve. But by learning to do that, then I actually went and became a director of a center for academic success that included coaching. And I worked really super close with the advising center on that office. I mean, you really couldn't separate our work. We were going towards the same goals. And so sometimes moving over can help you, um, you know, then later on move up. And I think a lot of things, Tim, too, you know, we, we've always I think good advisors are people who are learners. You always want some new challenges, some new ways to grow and finding ways to do that. Um, can lead to all kinds of unforeseen benefits in the future. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Is there anything that I haven't asked you yet that you just want to share or a tidbit, a, a funny story? <laughs> hmm. A funny story. I don't know. I hadn't thought about this. Um, I guess one thing that has stuck with me for for many years and will always stick with me in terms of working with students and realizing the importance of communication and the importance of listening and the importance of asking questions even when i think i know exactly what's going on um and the fact that the fact that you know i often tell people i, I often tell people who some of our advisors on campus as you know very experienced very good advisors have sort of dropped out of say gtan or they don't maybe participate in advisor professional development because they feel like there's nothing left for them to learn. They know it all. And I always say, oh no, I learned something new re related to advising every single week, if not every single day, all the time, right? But when I was an academic, I was doing an academic coaching meeting with a student once who um, had been referred to me for an academic dishonesty case. And this was something I normally didn't like to touch. I saw that as a kind of a different area, but at my, my other, this was at another institution and the um, VP for uh, student affairs had said, like, I'd, I'd really like for you to, to meet with the student because they felt like the student had made bad decisions based on their failure to manage their academic life, not because they really were likely to continue to make like to, to continue to engage and say um, integrity issues, if that makes sense. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet with the student and see how they go. I said, that's not normally what coaching is, but I'll meet with the student. So we, I meet with the student and we have a wonderful meeting. We talked for an hour. Um, she had, she had had that option of taking a final exam. She had an A, she didn't have to take the final exam and she decided to take the final exam and then had been accused of and admitted to blatant forgery. I mean, blatant, blatant, um, plagiarism sorry you know so it was like you know, she didn't have to take this exam and then she plagiarizes and messes everything up okay so we talked a lot about you know her interest in the class and how she makes decisions and how she's managing her time and you know part of it was she got really stressed out and you know felt like she ran out of time and wasn't thinking clearly and we we, we talk about all of these different sorts of strategies etc and i feel like the meeting's going really well and we're actually accomplishing things and at the end of the meeting she says you know i was really not sure i wanted to meet with you um but you know this was really really great i feel so good and i i feel really ready for next semester etc i'm thinking oh i feel great too so that's wonderful and i say okay so what what did you learn you know so we're trying to she says i learned never to take an optional exam again <laughs> What a great lesson. <laughs> and I was like, okay, wait, 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 Let, let's sit back down because that's, 
that that's not what I wanted you to feel like you learned. That that that's that's not what I that's not where we wanted to go. So, you know. I mean, but 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 she learned something. So we had to revisit that, you know. But yeah, so I often that I think that's something that reminds me. It's like listen and always then check back in. You may I may have a learning outcome for this meeting. And I may think we've achieved it, but I don't know unless the student actually tells me. And I think that's true for any advising interaction, right? You know, if, if, if it's a meeting, a scheduled meeting, hopefully the advisor has like a goal for the meeting. If it's drop in, the student kind of came in, but then taking that second say, okay, what did we accomplish? Are we on the same page? That that was a really important lesson. And this also said, it was just, it's just so funny. She's like, I learned never to take an optional exam again. I'm like. Okay, some lessons, <laughs> some lessons are unexpected. Yeah, it's like that's not it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Bestminster. I have truly enjoyed uh, getting an opportunity to talk to you about your advising and about your role uh, at Georgia Tech. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. And um, I it kind of inspires me to think about ways that I'd like to get, you know, I need to set some goals to get really more involved in some of the advising communities, I think, in the Cotta. That's something I'd really like to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and thank have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Awesome job, Leslie. And thank you, Beth, for being on and talking about the Georgia Tech Advisors Network and your advice for those looking to get involved in leadership. That does it for episode 48. Can you believe we're just two away from 50 episodes? Check out our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. I hope finals goes well for your students and you hopefully get a little downtime to catch up on projects and initiatives and to get some time in for yourself. Be back in two weeks for episode 49. Take care and... Keep advising. Don't want a complication.